On April 30, 1975, the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese Army, effectively ending the Vietnam War. In the days before, U.S. forces evacuated thousands of Americans in South Vietnamese. However, not everyone who wanted to escape could. With South Vietnam now under communist control, life for those left behind became a completely new and challenging world, one that would eventually lead many to escape by any means necessary. On today's episode, I welcome back retired Marine Corps fighter pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Din for part two to discuss his life as a Vietnamese refugee in the U.S. We talk about his combat experience as a Marine, some great lessons on selfless leadership, and then an absolutely amazing story on his full recovery from being paralyzed and how self-pity will get you nowhere, but having a badass wife can elevate you in ways you never imagined. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Are you ready, bro? Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is part two with John Dean, call sign Charlie. Recommendation, if you haven't listened to the first part of this, go back. It's pretty gnarly. Uh, Just some basic stories, escaping Vietnam as a refugee, growing up in Paris, learning French, going to high school in America, not speaking English, just your standard stories that are pretty awesome. All right, but we're going to get into uh, part two. So this one, Charlie, we left off part one, ended when... You were at Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. You had gotten in a fight. A dude in your platoon called you a gook. You fought him and then had to stand tall in front of the battalion commander. Yeah. Then, so you finish OCS. Take us away from, hey, OCS is concluded, and then where does life take you from there? Yeah, so, you know, we talked about in the last part that, you know, some... uh, Sergeant structures, you know, the, the DIs um, saw through all of that garbage and saved my career before I even started, you know. Um, anyways, um, like everybody else, I, ho- I go down to Pensacola and do my due, you know, and, and become a wizzo. And uh, I didn't know what being a wizzo meant. You know, we all watch Top Gun, kind of yeah. knew what Goose does. Yeah, so anybody that's listening that doesn't know what a wizzo is, uh, wizzo, <laughs> Goose is a wizzo. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. That's the best way of explaining it. Yeah. The, the, the two anchor um, brotherhood, you know? Yeah. And, and I didn't understand what it was until I started doing it. And about by halfway through, I'm like, man, this is, this is awesome. You know, I get to fly a jet, get to fly an airplane. Uh, and then the novelty kind of wore off when I realized that, man, I, my job is not really flying an airplane. Because you, you actually do some flying as part of Wizzo School, right? Yeah, the first, like, I can't remember, but the first 10 or 12 flights, um, you're, you're on the front seat. You're flying. You're flying. Um, the instructors are really there to make sure that you don't kill them and, and you, but you don't solo. You know, they, they, they take you through the flying characteristics, and you're doing all the stick and follow stuff, but you're not really being taught to be a pilot, you know? So then I realized that, you know, hey, they're trying to make us become an aviator. And that's what you do in, in NFO school. You know, you learn the part of being an aviator, bypassing the entire stick and follow thing, which I think was really hard. You know, like you can become a pilot and it'll take you a while to become an aviator, right? Have all the air sense and have the, the understanding, uh, three-dimensional uh, understanding of where you are in time and space. Uh, as a wizard, you learn that in school, 
right? And then after that, you learn all the employment of the uh, tactics and the, and the weapons and everything else. And then you learn how where you fit in that cockpit and how you bring value to that to that crew. So when you had, you had practiced your radio voice to get rid of your French accent, I'll do it all the time. Had you suitcased your radio voice by this point? It gotten better, but it wasn't. I knew it still wasn't good. It had gotten better. I knew that when I got excited or when things um, started happening, especially like in BFM and stuff like that, uh, I reverted back to being <laughs> my old self. You know, yeah, I yeah. spoke really fast. You know, and nobody could understand me, especially with the accent I had at the time. So I'm like, man, I, I got to really work hard on that. And that continued all the way into the fleet. Consciously slowing down yeah. your, your language. Speech. Yeah. Your speech. Gotcha. So, all right. So we're going we're gonna to move through the Wizzoville school. So you do a first tour as a Wizzo. You go to combat as a Wizzo. Yeah. So, so you, you know, check, you I went through in. 101 pretty fast. Okay. So you went through the RAG pretty quick. And right. then some guys had pulled for you. So you had a good experience at the RAG at 101. Yeah. I, I mentioned some names earlier, but, you know, Tonto... Um, he was one of my instructors down in ET86. I had gone across countries with him and opened my eyes to that world of shenanigans of fighter pilots. And I'm like, good God, absolutely. This is the community I want to be <laughs> this in. This is awesome. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the cross countries I went on is just absurd. You know, like still, still can't believe I actually survived being a second lieutenant through that. Yeah. And anybody who's flown a fighter knows what I'm talking about. Um, then, he goes to 101 at the same time to do his refresh and he's going to come back and be a department head. And I still don't have a grasp. I don't really know what all that means. I don't really know what the fleet means. I don't know, you know, once you finish 101, you're going to go to a squadron. I really don't, didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of thought, you know, hey, yeah, we're well, going to go out there and you're going to go to a fleet squadron and you go where you're told. No questions asked, you know? Yeah. But he finished ahead of me and, we do some cross countries in 101 with guys like Caveman and some other names that, once again, you know, the shenanigans continue. Shenanigans and, is a trend. Yeah. And, and I'm like, man, this is a life that I want to be part of, you know? Um, so he gets out to Mac 31 and gives me a call as, as I'm finishing up. He's like, how, how fast can you get here? So they call you from Beaufort, South Carolina. These are guys that were going through 101 with you. Yeah. They saw Charlie. They're like, he's a good dude. Let's bring him to our squadron. That's what I gathered, you know. But no, hang on, isn't there something else going on back in San Diego at the time? Yeah, yeah. Some, something uh, minor? Yeah, you know, my, my wife is pregnant with a first child. How pregnant? <laughs> she's like eight, eight and a half months. Okay, she's you know? ready to pickle. She's ready. And at that time, you know, we're getting ready to go part two of uh, of the war in Iraq, you know. and, and um, So 2000, this is 2004? 2002, 2003. Oh, 2002, 2003, all right. Yeah, I'm finishing up 2002 and starting 2003. And Mac 31 is going, you know, they, they head forward. Um, and, you know, I get a call and say, hey, man, how fast can you get here? Uh, and I said, three days, four days. He's like, well, hurry up, get over here, and um, we're going to combat. Like, Sweet. So, you know, I told my wife, I said, honey, don't come with me. Stay here. Stay with your family. And I'm going to go join the squadron. We're going to go to combat. And then when I get back, come back, I'll come and get you. Um and I packed everything in a 24-foot box truck, and east, eastward uh, I went, you know. Dro drove three days straight, didn't stop, <laughs> you know, stopped to, to sleep on the, on the side of the road. Yep. And uh, went into Buford and dropped everything in the storage, didn't even get a house. I was staying in a hotel, checked in, and next thing you know, we go to the Hornet classroom, and uh, 
and and Max CEO is like two twenty four. You're not going five thirty three. You're going. Wah 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 wah. Yeah. Um, and I think there were only two squadrons in Mac thirty one at the time that didn't go. It's one twenty two. They were on UDP already with two forty two and us. So we were like the. At that time, I didn't realize how bad of a squadron we were coming off of uh, whatever had occurred prior to, you know, to that period. So was was two twenty four in kind of a rebuilding mode? Yeah, they were. Okay, know, I think that's the story of two twenty four in general. Really terrible, and then rebuild into a really, really good, awesome, and then and then really terrible. Yeah, there's some history there. <laughs> I think some squadrons are like that, you know. So you get the news that combat's been canceled for now. Yeah, and then how to go with your wife, who's yeah, man, so about to have a baby. Yeah, and I I, I relate to her. I was like, hey, honey, I'm, looks like we're not going anywhere. And I was kind of dumb at the time, you know. I I didn't look and ask. I didn't, you know. I was the first lieutenant, and I wasn't gonna ask anybody. Hey, what's what's next? What's the team? I didn't even understand what a teep was, you know, and I said, well, it looks like we're going to be here. We're not going anywhere for a while. Um, so she popped on, on a plane and came out to Buford with me. I, and I'm, I'm scrambling at this point in time. You know, I ran an apartment, third floor, a uh, brand new apartment just built and we're going to have the baby. So I start flying with the squadron and, you know, I, I try to get everything set up. Uh, and then did the they time, know? Did did anybody at Squadron know your wife was about to have a baby? No, no, I didn't tell anybody. Got it. Did I was I was a first lieutenant, and my mindset is like, shut up. Just yeah, don't ask questions. <laughs> Be quiet, new guy. Shut up. I, I remember when I checked in. I think it might have been the WTO, the PTO, sat me and then the other guy that checked in about the same time as me. Gave us this thing, and I read it. The very first part, really big bold letters is you know ways to be successful on your first fleet tour. And one of the first bullets was, you know, big ears, little mouth. <laughs> the next bullet was like, you have no stories worth telling. <laughs> <laughs> no one cares if your wife is about to have a baby. And then the next thing was like, your opinion matters to nobody. Yep. And when it does, we'll let you know. <laughs> I know exactly. I've seen this. This document has gone around the Marine has Corps. It? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Then. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen this before. Yeah. Like. Your funny storyline of there you were in flight school. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it and then never talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it to yourself and then don't say it out loud. Yeah. So anyways. Nice. So, so you I, took that you took that to heart. Dude, I took it seriously. I was like, all right, shut up. Don't say anything. And um, yeah. And then one day I was flying. And then, you know, of course, the Marine Corps sets up. I think CACS was canceled and um, just set up a... Uh, an exercise for not just the aviators, but the grunts and everybody else. And I think we called it Diamond Twist. I, I can't remember. But everybody was going to go to Yuma. Mm -hmm. And we were going to operate. The grunts were, I think, at, cat, at uh, 29 Bombs. And we were going to operate uh, as a combined arms exercise. Uh, that was my first deployment, my first debt. Right? And, um, you know, by that time, you know, Cammy's due any day now. And... I'm flying with, I think it's Noser, Noser Brown. Yeah, he was, you know, one of the new section lead. And I was flying with him and it's like, hey, so how's it going? You know, we're just talking as we're, you know, flying. And he's like, is everything all right? You guys settling in well and you're married? And I'm like, yeah, everything's good. And he goes, any concerns? I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I hope my wife gives birth um, while I'm still home before we, we go on debt. He goes, what? So yeah, my wife is doing any day now. I just hope I can stay home to see the, the birds, you know? 
And he's like, does anybody know that you're about to have a baby and this is your first one? I say, yeah, I, I, I think so. I haven't told anybody. And then we didn't say anything else. And we land. He's like, come with me. Let's go to Exo's office. Exo. Charlie's about to have a baby. His wife is pregnant. She's about to pickle. Yeah. And they're like, good God. <laughs> you know, they read me the riot act. I'm like, um, so I, I, I get off the list of uh, guys that are going to go on a fly off. And, um, you know, we go in. That, that, was, a, that was a Monday. Uh, we go in to see the, uh, the doctor for a checkup. And she's like, oh, all right. So you guys are ready to have a baby. Uh, won't you go home, pack up your stuff, and I'll see you at the hospital tonight. And by Tuesday, we had the baby. What hospital? You guys at Beaufort Memorial? Yeah, Beaufort, uh, yeah. Beaufort Memorial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not the Naval Hospital. Right. Thank God. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she she had the baby. And at that time, she had she didn't know anybody. You know, we haven't met anybody. We haven't had a, uh, um, um, you know, like the, the standard, like, new guy welcoming and all that. Uh, and her mom was not ready to come over to help her out. So we had no family east of the Mississippi, right? So, like, I right, well, uh, yeah, we just had the baby, and we're going to get home, and um, I'm I'm going to debt on Friday. <laughs> so I hop on a plane and go on debt. So have the baby on Tuesday. It's gone by She's Friday. got no one there. Oh, yeah. And you bounce on Friday. Oh, yeah, man. And, and to boot, you know, like, we're on the third floor, and there's no elevators, you know? And she's a first-time mom, so she's not comfortable leaving her daughter as she's buying a grocery. So every time she went to the grocery store, she would walk up and down the stairs holding the baby in the baby car seat in the left arm and carrying the groceries on the right arm going up and down. But now this this story may sound, holy cow, this is craziness to most people who have kids, but your wife is not cut from the same cloth. Yeah, I mean... I think we talked about it earlier. I can't remember, but she's uh, she's a tough girl, and um, you know her background. I mean, you're talking about my survival and my escape through communists. Did she had the same thing with? She was born in Cambodia and survived through the killing fields of uh, the Khmer Rouge genocide, and you know her family escaped to the jungles of Cambodia through refugee camp in uh, in Thailand until they got sponsored and came over much later on, but. But but I think this is kind of what all spouses go through. Not not maybe not that extreme, but they all kind of go through the same thing, and that's what enables us to do what we do. You know. But it, you had mentioned that the by the time the word finally got out that Charlie and Cammy, you know, she's she's having oh, yeah. a baby. The, the wives, the rallied. wives, the the wives club had had kicked in. Yeah, they they rallied around, and uh, and I mean, Cammy was. That was her first exposure to military uh, spouse network, you know, and still talk to this day, you know. Like I remember the exo's wife come over and she would hold the baby and rock her to sleep while Cammy's taking care of business at home, you know, and putting things, the simple things, you know, like putting the groceries away or doing some of the stuff, and they would come and bring meals for her and all that. So, yeah, they, the girls are um, super tight-knit group, you know, and they, they take care of one another. It's a special group. Oh yeah, definitely. All right, so you, uh, so she's cool with it. Hey, go Charlie, go go bomb Southern California uh, <laughs> with your new squadron. So you bounce over to Cax, yeah. right? Yeah. And th- this is your first time you guys at actually. This is your first time with live ordnance since the rag, right? Yeah, this is my first time doing any type of uh, 
a debt and like a real debt and you're no. interacting with the ground forces. Oh, yeah. So this is the first, you know, mini war practice yeah. that you get a chance to do. How was that? I mean, that's early on. That's a cool experience for a young Wizzo. Yeah. You know, you, you quickly learn and we go through the, um, I don't even know if it was a thing back then, but combat winging syllabus, you know, you, you do some of the basic codes and, and you just get up to speed. And the first time you're flying with the back then it was a B pot, you know, it wasn't lightning. It was a B pot nighthawk. First time you're flying with a hot, with a pot that actually works, you know, and you're flying for the first time with guys that that were nuggets, you know, me and shoot Spicoli, <laughs> this brand new guy, youngsters together, yeah, and we were flying together and skull, you know, we we were knuckleheads together, flying together and figuring things out as wingmen, you know. So that was awesome, man. And some of those guys are my lifelong friends now, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for you, mm-hmm. you know. And how long bond. after? How long after that detachment did you guys get to go to Iraq? So we we did a d- detachment for, I think, two and a half months or something like that. And then we came back, and then within um, maybe less than six months, we went on UDP. We went to replace 122. All right, so you're on Westpac. Yeah. Cruising around Japan. Yeah, went out, lit my hair on fire, you know. Got put in hack once or twice. Nice. I think I got put in hack. On debt in Yuma. Is that something we should talk about? Uh, Maybe another time. Okay. But (laughs) I didn't know what being put in hack meant. It's like jail. (laughs) It's like just... It's like officer jail. Officer jail. (laughs) Yeah. Funny story about officer jail. Uh, I know some guys who... There's a uh, off-limits establishment. Maybe near... I think it was Iwakuni. And... (laughs) Uh, one of my buddies was a junior uh, captain. He's on the desk. He's on duty. It's a Saturday, yeah. right? Well, the four senior officers in the squadron, so CO, XO, OPSO, AMO, get arrested by shore patrol at this off-base establishment. <laughs> that was a gentleman's club, a very classy one. And uh, so he gets the call from base police saying, hey, we've got your four senior officers in hack. Can you come get them? Good times. Dude. Good times. I. I think during that time, there may or may not have been a current Mac CEO now who's standing tall next to me, also in hack. Nice. <laughs> Leadership. We're going to leave his name Setting out. the example. We're going to leave his example. name out. All right, so fast forward. Now you're going to, you guys went to Al-Assad, right, with T-24? Yeah, we come back from UDP, and uh, it was a quick turn, and we're going about to replace 242, and, and, and we're going back right to Al-Assad. And, and this is know. 2005 now? Yeah, 2004-ish, 2005. So... Phantom Fury, just, it was just at the it, tail end of Tefal. Tail end, so it's busy. That was a busy. Yeah, I mean, we had read all the, the exploits at two forty two. You know, it's like, oh my god, uh, this is very kinetic. You're talking about guys who were going out and Winchester before they even hit Joker, right? They were doing some good work. You know, they were they were hooking and jabbing. Mm-hmm. So this is your first experience to really put that training. I mean, this is where you make your money. Yeah, this is why we do what we do. What was your mental prep, if you did any, before going to actual combat? You know, um, I'll tell you a story to kind of uh, sum it up a little bit, but I don't think we talked about this before. But So it was kind of hard for me to kind of grasp the, hey, we're going to combat. We know we weren't getting, you know, you weren't going to go up there and hold DCA cap and bad guys like, like they have right now in Ukraine or anything like that, right? But it was still a sense of, hey, you're going to combat in a bad bad place, right? So I didn't have the heart to tell my mom, you know, 
um, that um, after we had gone through all of that, escaping and all that, and, and here I am going back to combat in the military. So I don't say anything to her, um, but I tell my brother and my wife, and I said, hey, you know, once I get over there, get established, then let her know. And uh, so my prep was pretty much making sure that everything was in order at the house. You know, she was good to go with our kids. Um, at that time, actually, we only had one kid. And um, I go fly, and I come back um, from one of my flights. And um, that was also the day I turned 30. Yeah, I turned 30 in, in, in theater. And I got this, uh, at the time, there was this, this new thing where, you know, you could send an email, and then they would transcribe it into a little, like, like a message, you know, and they would print it out, and it would become a letter, and they'd mail it to you. And we would get that in theater, right? So my mom sent me this letter, and I read it, and I was like, holy shit, this is what it's all about, you know? So I kind of paraphrased it a little bit, but she basically said, you know, I, it breaks my heart to see that you are going back into a war after everything that we had experienced and fighting and escaping one war to get a better life for ourselves. But um, I never thought once that uh, we would be able to pay the debt that we owe to America. You know, this is an adoptive country and the opportunities that we have now is, I never once thought that we would ever be able to be paid the debt that we owe to America. But you're paying all of our debts and for that, I'm pretty proud of what you're doing. I mean, that, that just captured, to me, is like, hey, I love what I was doing, and I have the support, and, you know, she understood why I was doing things, and... Dude, that's badass. Yeah, so it... That was my mom. So that, that helped get your head... Not that it wasn't right, but that... Talk about a little boost of motivation when, when mom and the family got your back, back yeah. home. Yeah. That helps a dude keep his head right when he's yeah. uh, in slightly stressful scenarios. All right, so you're you're in Whistleville now, man, and you're over Iraq. Do you remember your first nine line when you guys got the first you know standby we, for nine line? Honestly, when when we showed up, it was a tail end of Phantom Fury, and things had quieted down a little bit. So in the beginning, it was kind of quiet. Uh, there were a few guys, a few sales that you know they somehow every time they went out they were dropping, you know, quite a bit. Um, but when I employed was with, uh, I was flying, I think it was Goldie was flight lead. I can't remember uh, the other guys I was flying with. But it was like standard boring, you know, you're hanging up Max E overhead Baghdad and just waiting for something to happen. And then most of the time you just went to the tanker, get gas and then come back and be glad that nothing happened, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, we get called that we were going to employ and drop some GB12s and some buildings for extraction for some guys that were doing some stuff on the ground. So it went from max E to really fast. Yeah. Heart rate goes from like 60 yeah. beats a minute to but 200. We had brief and we had practiced so much that I remember actually on that particular drop, we actually had to execute the, Hey, the uh, primary laser went down and last minute you call the other guy to laze. And, and we did it real time. Fumble. And it was like clockwork, man. Nice. So, yeah, you know, you know, you've done this many times, much more than I have. And you go from sheer boredom, routine, 
max endurance to 100 miles an hour. Yeah, dude. <laughs> really quick. It was like, stay cool, sound cool on the radio, sound cool yeah. on the radio. Yeah, your heart rate. Yeah. Your heart's racing. Freaking you, a million beats a minute. You're just making sure that you're doing everything correct, that you've put the right code in and you've got the target capture. You hope that you're doing everything right. Yep. So successful employment. Yeah. Nice. That's a win. So that's, I don't want to, you know, shortchange that deployment, but I know that was, that was busy for you guys. There were times when, like when it was very kinetic, but other times when it was yeah. kind of quiet. Right. So what was something you took away from that deployment? Just a, just a good lesson learned or, or, or nugget from that you know, for experience me, that you put in your toolbox. Yeah, for me it was, you know, what I mentioned earlier that we spend an ornament time rehearsing and practicing, right? And... Oftentimes, it never happens. Oftentimes, you just kind of drill holes in the sky, right? And the moment you're called upon to employ, you got to be ready. Yep. And failure is not an option. <laughs> it's I try to describe because, you know, some people think it's like the movies. You know, like you're just getting shot at all the time. You're dropping bombs yeah. every flight. Like, no, not at all. It's not even close. And, you know, for the grunts too, kicking rocks. Or throwing rocks at one other rock, you know, aiming, just all these little, you're just killing time. Yeah, I mean, there are guys I know who, uh, like the dudes in 242, when every flight they went out, they were employing, mm -hmm. right? And I think when you were with 533, you know, every time your waves went out, you were shooting the gun or you're dropping bombs or something, right? Um, but most of pe most of us who went out over there, we brought the same ordinance back. <laughs> And that makes it harder, I think, yeah. when you have to, to stay go, mentally ready. Yes. When you're and this isn't just, you know, you've been deployed and it's a few weeks in deployment, but this is years in the making. Yeah. This is for you guys at this point, three, four or five years in the making and you're training for that one. And you might get one chance, maybe yeah. one chance where the guys on the ground need your support. And that's your one shot. And I know guys who have gone 20 plus years. Well, I'll tell you what, man. And during that deployment, the first employment um, was, was Slaka. He was he shot a laser math uh, with to, to, uh, in support of the guys on the ground. And the funny thing is, those guys actually had a, 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 a video of them being shot at. And them calling in the, the, um, um, the closer sport. And then you can hear his laser maverick hitting that vehicle with the dudes that were shooting at them. And you can hear it when it goes over overhead. And you can hear it smacking. And they're all cheering. And then the, the shooting stopped because he had good effects. So we saw, we saw the video from his pod and from the guys on the ground being shot at. That's awesome. That was the very first employment we had in the squadron. You know, I think it was a month or two after we had gone in the country. Yeah. And, and it, it dawned how real what we were doing. Guys were getting shot at. I mean, I'm dead serious. From their uh, vantage point, you could hear the bullets zinging off the um, the uh, the eleven fourteen. You know, it's like zing, 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 and you can hear, and you can hear the guys say, "Hey, buddy, get a head down." He just he just fired, and next you know you hear, Wah! boom, <laughs> and then no more shooting. <laughs> nice. That's the. It, it really is a real thing. It can be hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of just turning left or right. Go get gas. Turn left. Get more gas, turn left some more. And that can go on for a few months. And then when you're going through the motions, turning left, you hear, stand by for nine line. 
Yeah. And then shit gets real. Yeah. But you got to be ready. And you can hear in the voice of the guys on the ground operating too. You know, yeah. sometimes you can't hear them. They're running into buildings and, you know, the radio gets cut out or you can hear the excitement in their voice, you know. Definitely. All right, we're going we're gonna to keep moving here, man. So successful deployment, you get back to Buford. But in the process, prior to this deployment, you had put in an application for a pilot slot to go through flight school to become a pilot. Yeah, so as soon as I hit the fleet, you know, I was like, hey, man, I love what I'm doing, but I, I want to be a pilot. So I put in for a transition. And unbeknownst to me, it's like me and 99% of all the Wizzles and ECMOs in the Marine Corps. I think. No kidding. <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, of course, I didn't get selected the first, uh, second try because I think, you know, we only pick a couple a year, like one or two, you know, and most of them were Jedis of the wizard world. Yeah. Uh, and rightfully so. Um, but um, I came back and at that time, you know, Marinko was at war. So all of us first tour captains, you know, we got, I got called into the office and Exo was like, all right, guys. Yeah. And Exo said, all right, guys. Knuckleheads are going uh, to go on a fact tour, so you can tell me your choice, you know. And, and it wasn't if you were going to go on the fact tour as your second tour; it was which fact tour you were going to go on. And I think there was six or seven of us. Uh, we all kind of like said, "Hey, this is the one that we wanted." And Spicoli had already gone to um, second angle go. Uh, all the other guys had different battalions and news and whatnot. They were selecting. I wanted to deploy right away, so I knew that Anglico was uh, getting out the door pretty quick. So I, I told them, I said, hey, I put in my name in the hat for second Anglico. But at the time, the process was, you know, you'd tell the monitor and he would reach out to the, uh, to, to, to the unit and they would kind of do an internal vetting and tell you whether yay or nay. Um, and, um, you know, I got the thumbs up and I went to TACP. All of us, actually, me, Doe, Skull, you know, to all everybody, lunchbox. We all went to the same TACP class, you know, and um, I think SIP too. And we all went to Lejeune, and then we had a pretty awesome blow it out the party uh, in Raleigh. You know, it's kind of like, hey, last hurrah, last month before we all. So this is all Wizos, uh, or do you had some pilots. So you had a whole two twenty four crew, yeah, that was going on fact tours, yeah, and then you guys go to Raleigh for a weekend and just burn it down, yeah. Nice. I think Skull went on a Mew. Spicoli went on. He was an angle go with me. The other guys was like second battalion, eighth Marines, and um, I can't remember all the other ones. I think I can't remember which one Sip was on. But anyways, those two. He was in one of the battalions. Uh, but we're like, hey, we don't know what's gonna happen. We're gonna go on a ground fact tour in in theater. So let's go. All have like kind of like our K court and go out. You know, do good things. <laughs> And I remember we came back and Dose had a house in um, Emerald Island, I think. That sounds familiar? I don't, dude, I don't know. It's off uh, Lejeune. Um, and I remember waking up like flat drunk. I mean, the, me and Skull and Dose were all like passed out in the front yard. We didn't even make it inside the house. Any tattoos? <laughs> Any new tattoos? Thank God. Any no wives? Tattoos. Any new wives? <laughs> uh, thank God we didn't have any nefarious thing happen to us sure. afterwards. <laughs> But it was awesome, man. It was. It's kind of like that's the Marine Corps in a nutshell. Yeah, you know. Of yeah. course, you know we we lost tubes in that subsequent deployment, but um, all, all right. of us made it back. You know. So you check into Second Anglico. How was the first conversation you had with the CEO? So I didn't know him. I didn't know anybody other than uh, Spicoli. 
and um, I knew I was getting in pretty late and they were deploying within two weeks. Um, so the the thought was that I was going to just go to the um, headquarters. You know, I was just going to be one of the guys in the headquarters and then go out and replace guys if, if uh, anybody had any issues and whatnot. But I was going to be an outside with, with the main headquarters unit. Uh, but, they, you know, XO came in and said, hey, don't get out of your alphas. Skipper wants to see you. So, um, you know, go, go chat with him. So go in and he interviews me basically, just has like an hour long conversation with me. Um, and at the end, he's like, all right, uh, you're taking in a team, you're taking an assault team. And, um, you know, the, the previous guy that was supposed to go, Slater guy, uh, I think he got fired or something. Uh, he he did something in one of their last debt in Yuma, and he got fired. So here I am. I have, I don't know him. I haven't trained with the with the unit, and I haven't done anything at all with them. I just came straight from TACP. My last experience in combat was flying with two twenty four. You know, what and was the, what was the CO's background? He was an infantry guy. He was a battalion commander, and man, I, it's it's fuzzy, but I think he was post O five command as an infantry um, um, dude, and then went on to your second Anglico. Now so knowing what I know, that it doesn't, it doesn't sound right because, you know, Anglico is just another 05 command, you know? Right. But I'm pretty sure he was post-05 command. But if he's post-battalion commander during, you know, 2003, 2004? Oh, he saw some shit. He's busy. Oh, yeah. He, dude, he's... The dude, I, I can't remember his name, but... You know, from talking to the guys, you know, he was well-known in the community. You know, he was an infantry guy through and through. So he had seen the initial push and all that, you know. So the, there's a little bit of a cultural dynamic and difference from, you know, just being a Hornet guy yeah, to a pretty salty infantry, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to a pretty salty infantry battalion commander. And I know sometimes that first interaction, you know, for buddies of ours that have done factors, Sometimes it doesn't go so well. Yeah, but I, for think, I think they, they have an idea in their mind what what they want, you know, for an officer in general. Right. Uh, and I think they have an, the idea of what an aviator is or isn't. Uh, fortunately for me, you know, there are guys like Spicoli and a bunch of other dudes there. Uh, subsequently, in that same time frame of me, you know, a bunch of those guys ended up being 05 and 06 commanders later on. So they were good dudes whether they were field artillery guys or even 46 guys and, and the likes, you know, so it was a good bunch, man. So um, you started off on a, you had a good initial interaction and for sure with your battalion commander. Yeah. He, he basically kind of, um, from the conversation I remember was he was feeling me out for my maturity level as well as how I viewed my, my job. And, I think he wanted to know whether or not I was one of these guys that, you know, hey, this is the aviator who's looking to make his own glory and go down and do stupid stuff and get people in in danger, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I must have passed the uh, the litmus test because he, you know, within an hour, he's like, hey, you're going to take the team. And I don't know if people know, but at the time, you know, it may be different now, but the way the anchor goes, that's organized, you know, we we are basically your tactical air party and a bunch of a uh, couple officers like my team we had three officers i had a infantry captain and a field artillery first officer and then we had nine enlisted guys uh forward observer comms guy 
and, you know, machine gunners. And where did you, so Anglicale, kind of a unique type unit. You're a little more on your own program than yeah. a traditional battalion. 100%. Yeah, so we, we test organized as a brigade platoon uh, made up of like uh, four, yeah, I think we had four or five supporting armed liaison teams, assault teams of the makeup I told you earlier. And essentially my team, uh, we broke it down into three fire combat teams, you know, and each led by an officer. And I was kind of like the de facto air officer and those two were, um, you know, forward air controller in a kind of like the same makeup that you would have in a, in a line unit. Uh, but but our, our job was to essentially take that supporting arm liaison team and incorporate ourselves with foreign countries, you know, other services. In my case, I was attached to an arm, army mechanized infantry battalion. That's so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a little different. You know, a, a small Are teams you, of Marines getting com- attached to completely an different army man. battalion. I, I was a very junior for a uh, captain. I think I had just gotten promoted to captain, and I was a senior dude. Yeah. I showed up in Al-Assad, and with my team, we picked up our uh, our three Humvees, our, our crypto gear, and all and everything else. And we convoyed down to uh, my AO hit, you know, which is a little bit west of Ramadi, and uh, joined up with that battalion that had that AO. And I was the senior Marine officer in that outfit. There you go, man. And <laughs> yeah. so what were the choices? Because you had three teams. Yeah. And you had to split them up. So you took... Yeah, yeah. So the way that um, the, the AO broke itself out, you know, we that, that battalion that we operated with, um, they were organized as a a combination of companies. Uh, the I think the, Ar- the army at the time experimented with uh, expeditionary mindset. So the battalion commander was a light infantry guy, like a one of first guy, uh, and then uh, he had a company of like full up M one A two tanks with the company commander and the whole shebang. And um, he had a company of uh, mechanized infantry guys, uh, the Bradley guys, right? And then, you know, his exo was an armor guy. And that's how they deployed together. And that's who I supported, right? So you, which one of the three did you pick? So what I did is I, I, I established myself as the air officer, the de facto air officer. So I established my headquarters with the battalion uh, talk. And then I sent the uh, one of the fire combat team with the, um, the the tank company across the river, and then the other f- fire combat teams, I sent them with the uh, Bradley company, Dude. and we were geo dispersed, but we had all the Gucci com gear and everything that we was handed down to us, you know. And I think a lot of it came from the force, kind of like a uh, footprint. Mm-hmm. And we had an awesome com suite, and I I established myself as the guy who was doing all the duties of air officer. Now, mind you, I didn't know any of this crap up until, I mean, I had, through uh, TACP school, you kind of learned this, but I didn't have the luxury of going to a line unit, and that was established already, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, right? I got you. So I, I talked to my buddies, and I kind of figured out that this is how we needed to establish our uh, operations, you know, like, hey, um, you're getting your air from, you know, Marine Air, because we were operating under the uh, RCT-5 at the time. Uh, and I quickly learned the battle rhythm, how you get air, how do you source air, you know, who had, when, when purple air was available, uh, how do you, you know, control it and what you had available. And then, uh, so, but, but that, 
also because of the fact that I had some very, very experienced guy, the the infantry captain I had and the, and the field artillery guy I had, man, these guys had, they were junior to me in rank by very little, but way more versed than I was in combat. They had been in combat many, many times, including one of them was an initial push. <laughs> you know? So you got a good roster. Oh, dude. They... You got a good roster there. Oh, yeah. Uh, even the, um, the enlisted guys that were on the second or third combat deployment. So, I mean, that's an all-star team. Yeah, for and sure. Now, you had mentioned yesterday when we, when we were talking that everyone in your team was trained and fluent in calling in a close air support nine line. Yeah, so that's something that I took uh, from my experience having flown overhead, you know, and I, I was adamant. Um, especially at the time I was the uh, fat K uh, within the, the squadron, right? So I wanted to make sure that if any one of us went down, right, the officers, that anybody else within the team could pick up the radio and give a rudimentary nine line, It'd be functional. But now you're talking Kazavak nine line. Well, yes, both. So the, everyone was fluent in calling in a close air support nine line, putting a bomb on a target from I an airplane. S- I would say that they we trained them to be very fluent in calling a medevac, calling a medevac, and they were functionally capable of completing a nine line with anybody who was flying and was fluent in cast. Got it. Right. So if you, Susan, was talking to this Lance Corporal who was calling in because I was, you know, I, I hit the dirt you would be able to get the pull enough information and determine whether or not the situation warranted or did not want the air support and then pull enough information from them to execute that, you know, that that employment without, you know, the worst case scenario hitting the uh, other good guys, right? Was there a scenario that actually popped up where you, you know, maybe your comms went down or something, maybe you were... The no. RDO or, or where one of the junior Marines had to call in either a CAS 9 line or a Kazavak 9 line? No, not quite in uh, in the sense that, you know, one of us went down and, and uh, the uh, the comms guy or the uh, Ford Observer had to call in a 9 line. But there were times when, because of the way that we were operating, we didn't have, you know, the ability to reach for a medevac. And the only way we could do it is via relay. And I remember there was one time when my sergeant, was up the hill on the SATCOM making a call for, you know, uh, purple air so that we can get a medevac going because we were way out down in Caseba, you know. So, yeah, they, they were comfortable. We we did that a lot in the short time I had before we went infantry, and we were basically doing a lot of hip pocket class. We talked yesterday, you know, like, you know, you always hear back then uh, the grunts talking about, yeah, we're going to swing with the wing, you know, guys don't do shit. We're going to play volleyball all day. Yeah. Wear tight jeans. And I'm like, that kind of shit. Bro, there's so much downtime <laughs> on the outside. Dude, there is. There's so much like PT you there can do. Is. And there's so much like cleaning your rifles. You lo- there's a lot of tr- six degrees of separation, a lot of trivia, a lot of would you rather, yeah. a lot of, you know, who's hotter, a lot of, I mean, there's I mean, you, you spend the time. I mean, of course, you know, the CEO established what you wanted to prioritize, but you spend a lot of time in the law armed conflicts, the ROE, and you spend a lot of time on, on cultural stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a lot of time to go over nine lines and how to do our job, you know. And that's one thing that I harped on. It's like I wanted our guys to be comfortable 
and not be afraid that if I took one in the between the running lights, that they could pick up the radio and call it a medevac. It's awesome, man. Two key parts of, and if you look at the probabilities, like, you know, again, we covered this yesterday briefly. What has a higher probability? Having to call in a Kazavac nine line or a close air support nine line. Yeah. We no. did more Kazavac than anything else. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're there to do both. Yeah. Your primary mission and everything, but you need to be able and capable of, you know, the Kazavac nine line. So when you, you know, you're on the ground, man, you're doing your thing. You had, gosh, two weeks of prep to get ready. You got your team split up. Dude, why didn't you go with the tanks, man? <laughs> I, was, I was like, come on, dude. M1A2 is a company of tanks, dude. Dude, we, we, we chatted about it yesterday. and Because I'm biased, man. I'm, I've, like, yeah, I did my factory at Second Tanks, and it was freaking awesome. So You know, I, I rode with the, um, with the Bradleys. Uh, I rode with the tankers. Um, I went out on sniper overwatch, you know, 72-hour watch. Uh, I did some aero scout mission with uh, with the force guys. Um, that deployment is still one of the highlights of my career. It 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 really was everything I thought being in combat on the ground would be. Were the tanker guys busy? Yeah. Okay. You'd be surprised how much similarities they have to us in terms of how they employ. Oh yeah. Ma- maintenance phase. Yep. Uh, oh totally, absolutely, man. You know, has the employee section? How um, you know they have blind spot. How they have, you know, wingmen. They call themselves wingmen, I think. I remember. And, you know, it was difficult for them in the AO we were in because when we were rolling around in the tight alleys of a hit, a tank was very vulnerable. Sure. Right. Uh, same thing with the Bradley. You know, I I, I went on um, patrols with the Bradleys and I went on patrols with the um, M2s and we had our, our um, 1114s with the 50 cal on top. We were a lot more maneuverable than they were. Um you know, we took IDs, we, we took hits, we took RPG hits, and those guys were very vulnerable inside the city like that. Yeah, the tank, uh, the blind spots on a tank are a real thing. Yeah. And, yeah. I, dude, I lucked out. You know, we talked about my factor briefly, but, you know, being a part of a tank battalion and what, just the amount of firepower it brings. Oh, yeah. It is, it's just ridiculous. Right. Like but, you, but, you know, like, now knowing now what I know after being an AMO and up. So, you know, I, I kind of know that it was a very, very difficult deployment for them because they didn't have the full support of being a full up armor battalion. Right. With all the logistics support, with all the maintenance support, with all the extra, you know, tail that they can. Swap yeah. In the and maintenance out. is something that people forget. The logistics and maintenance to support a tank. Tanks break. It's a Bradley's, vehicle. Yeah. Tanks. Bradley's as well. Yeah. They had their, their phase maintenance that they had adhere yeah. to and, you know, especially when they get knocked off an IED and blew up the tracks, you know? Sure. So that was difficult for them, and this struggle with maintaining the, the readiness, and mm-hmm. they got beat up by the, during the talk, the, the cup, the commander's update brief all the time. You know? All right, so without getting into too much maintenance stuff, you got a chance to call in close air support yeah, from I, the I ground. And so now you've gone from the air perspective as a wizzo, getting to see things you know, from the God's eye view, from our view, to now you're on the ground. Yeah. And it's a very different perspective. Yeah, the employment I had, um, you know, I, I called in and it ended up being a type two, but type two only because of the fact that I didn't have direct sight of the of the target. You know, it was So this was this your first nine line? Yeah. And yeah. who was the attacking platform? It was the Harriers. Awesome dudes. 
true professionals, man. And I, I loved working with the with the nightmares. They from the moment they checked on, the moment they checked out, they were true professionals. Like masters of the craft. And they prided themselves on being on time. I could set my clock and hack. You'd hear them check in. You know, it gives you goosebumps, you know. And I'd be sitting in a talk with, and when I played AR officer and when I was back in the rear and the guys were out, you know, in, in, uh, in the city, I'd, I'd tell the, um, the watch officer, you know, uh, the army guys, and I would look over and give them a shitty grin about, <laughs> hey, check this out. 10 seconds before Marine Air check in. Yeah. He's like, nah, this guy's never show up. I was like, all right, you ready? Three, two, one, hack. And it would start. Script was start. Nice. Dude, it gave, it gave me I know. Fun, but talk about a confidence builder. Yeah. Talk about building that relationship with the guy on the ground. Yeah. I mean, if you know your dudes are going to be on time, your close air support, your your airborne assets are going to be on time, professional, ready to rock and roll. Man, that... Because yeah. if it goes the other way, if yeah. that initial little... Because your, your meet and greet is on the radio. Well, but I'll you, tell you what, man. The, the battalion commander that I had, he was not... They were not accustomed to having closer support the way we did because they were um i think they were essentially direct support of the rct they were operating in the allen bar under rct5 which is weird right an army battalion operating in the marine ao under the cognizance of a, of a regimental commander with a marine fac controlling marine air so he didn't really fully understand how we did it and how we operated. Uh, and, and so in the beginning, it was a little dance of like, I, I see what you're trying to brief me and I see how you're trying to employ, but I don't really understand it. And I don't really trust it, you know. Uh, even something as simple as like me trying to convince them that, you know, we needed to have the singers, um frequencies that they operated on so that we can, if needed, pass the comms from the attacking platform directly to the guys sitting in the in the Bradley fighting vehicle. Um, so those little steps of showing them how professional Marine Air was when we checked in on station, I could count on the uh, nightmares checking in, giving me the professional. Every single check in was the same, and they read off the the list, and I knew I had this little, I made up this little board. Right, this grease pencil board, and whenever they checked in, I would just fill in the blanks on what they had by exception. You know, I knew what they were bringing in and what they had and what worked and didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then, so I start teaching the the army watch officer in the event I was out doing a, a patrol or something and I wasn't there. He could and take what, a check yeah, in. He could check take a check in. That's awesome. And did it by a couple weeks into it. After a while, I knew I won them when. The cub change to have a slide basically asking the air officer what air was available and what capabilities they so brought. So you're you're filling in some blanks. There's some there's some procedural differences between what the army normally does and, and what you guys bring to the table. So you're 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 building a relationship with those guys. Yeah. And but yeah, dude, that is such a confidence builder. And I'm sure you saw the how that unfolded with the army guys when you're like three, two, one, hack, boom, section yeah. of Harriers check in, yeah, on time every time. Yeah, the nightmares were were on uh, were in Al Assad, 
Uh, so you know, we always make fun of them. I love my hairs. <laughs> I know we do. <laughs> we used to make fun of them all the time being the Unabomber, yeah, not dude. having to gas. But to be honest with you, man, at that point in time, they had just gotten the uh, H2O software. So they were better than us in certain ways mm-hmm. because they could generate, you know, JDAM quality grid by, with their pot. Right. Uh, whereas we couldn't do that. Yeah, we would make in front of the Harriers. And then when we got to uh, got Bahrain, it was they were flying with the ITERS. Yeah. Which carried six GVU 38s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, "What's a, wait a second, man. Yeah. What happened to your one bomb, bro? Yeah. And so the, I, st- I couldn't talk shit anymore. The time of station was the same as ours, you yeah. know. And those guys, like I said, were true professionals, man. I, I knew a couple of guys in the squadron at the time. And their XO was great American, you know, Smash Austin. So wait, let's let's talk about that employment a little bit. Yeah. So it was a Type 2 bomb on target. Yeah. So at the time, you know, we, we had... Uh, eyes on from uh one of our op that uh there, there was an suv full of dudes and what was i'm gonna i'm gonna pick this one apart so what was your range visually from your position to where the target vehicle was maybe a mile okay a mile. but but i didn't have direct visual because i was in a building and uh you know mangroves in between us so no direct visual but i had radio calls in from the from the op that they observed these guys got out of the suv with a so bunch you're of talking AKs. to a forward observer okay. one of, on your team who does have eyes on the target, right. but also what were you, what type of suite did you have? What kind of bells and whistles gear did you have? Well, you remember at that time I had the, uh, the Rover, um, with, uh, PDSS and all that. Right. Um, so you could see you're watching on your little mini, we'll call it iPad. Yeah. You're seeing on a screen what the pilot is seeing in the Harrier from not, his pod. Not yet. So not yet. I was getting called in from the observer that he had positive ID, a bunch of dudes can now with AKs and they're digging and they, and he's watching them like rolling out like a triple stack, a one five five, the back of the uh, SUV. big IED. Uh, but you know we didn't have any uh, patrols in the near vicinity, and uh, he knew we there was along one of our routes. You know we knew that we had patrols going through there, um, and um, the area at that time allowed us to engage. Right, we didn't have a tick, but it was enough for us to engage. And um, you know by the time I, I called the Harriers in, because they were on station. And we handed off the Cornet based on a talk on. And they put the pots in and I dialed in the data link and boom. Like, holy crap, man. You know, this like, is working. Yeah, this holy is working, shit, dude. dude. I'm, I'm watching dudes. I'm like, yeah, you know, he's got a he's got his miss car if he's holding an AK with yeah. a banana clip and all that. Yeah, that's 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 a triple one five five, you know. In a one five five, uh so folks listening, a one five five is an artillery round that weighs roughly a hundred pounds. Yes. And they had three of them. That's, that was the the uh, the mo. They had a couple that would like you know band it together and dig a hole and. Drop so you're looking inside. at a 300 pound improvised explosive device, right? That that was their the TTP. You know, they rolled it out. You know, burned the concrete real quick, and then they had a hole in the bot in, in the bottom of a of a vehicle, and they would drop it in and then fill it in with concrete, and off they went. And so your. What was the timeline? So your your forward observer does he the, is he the first one that spots these guys? Yeah, and then he calls you. Yep. What was your call sign? Oh, so my call sign at the time was Lightning. Uh, I can't remember the number now, but Lightning Seven something. Okay. But everybody who checked in, I was like, "Yep, this is Lightning." But they're like, "Hey, Charlie, what's going on?" Nice. <laughs> they nice. all knew me, but that's Charlie. good shit. All right, yeah. so you're Lightning. Let's go with Lightning One One, yeah. so I can remember that Lightning One One. So he calls you and says, "Hey, I'm watching these dudes." place an IED yeah you they are Harriers on station right now already yeah all right they're on station at that point you start generating the nine line yeah 
and uh, you know, I uh, and it was kind of a bastardized nine line at that point in time. I just quickly give them a, um, a talk on to get them their pots on, and sure as shit, you know, they get their pot on. And it's like boom. And at that point, behind the scenes, you know, while I'm watching it, I'm I have positive ID now, right? So I quickly give him like a game plan. I can't remember exactly the details, but it's like, hey, dude, uh, we're gonna go laser mav, followed up with GBU uh, 38, you know, because um, generate your your cornets now, right? Because once you hit the, the the laser mav, it's gonna have smoke and debris and shit and you may not be able to see but you can employ right after so you had your choices were gb38 a gps guided 500 pound bomb or a lmav a laser guided yeah air to ground missile yeah on to a vehicle you know and um and a bunch of dudes was hanging around like providing security right so um and i'm paraphrasing this but you know we we quickly behind the scene the first thing i'm doing is I'm getting authorization from the tank commander to employ, right? Because at the end of the day, that's still his AO, and I work for him. I have certain authority, but this is not something you're going to do. And then, oh, hey, the tank commander, this is what happened. It's not a, it's not a uh, take. So while the nine lines going on, you get the green light. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm with the watch officer. We dial up the, uh, the BC, and you know, EXO was staying watch at that point in time, and he had followed everything along, and he's like, yep. We checked in, and I'm talking on Merc chat with uh, higher, you know, um, to ensure, you know, that everybody, the airspace was clear and everything was good to go. At the same time, I'm talking to the watch officer to get a, you know, update on the position of the friendlies. I, I kind of knew, but I wanted to make sure, right? So he's updating all the patrols and all the OP and everything else. Uh, and the last thing we needed to do was making sure that, you know, we expanded out to make sure that we weren't going to have any collateral damage civilians or anybody else nearby but those guys you know the locals once they saw that they they knew something was about to go down anyway so they hightailed out of there so we had everything suitcase you know i i knew which direction i needed to bring the um, their hairs in uh, just to make sure that the um, laser map if it goes stupid it doesn't go towards any direction we didn't want it to go you know so then i i ran up to the top of the roof with my rover right and uh, I had a cable long enough that could reach out to uh, to the second floor. And I quickly gained visual of the Harriers circling overhead. And I kind of like quickly determined that the uh, final attack heading I'm giving them is, is going to keep them clear of all the stuff we wanted to make sure. Um, and yeah, and then nine line goes, and next thing you know, they push. I get visual. The guy's in the dive. I see him, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Clear hot. And I'm watching the missile come off. It's pretty surreal, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I watch the missile come off. And then once it goes out of my sight, you know, I, I, I see it, you know, impact on the rover. And, uh, yeah, that was it. Good hits. Yeah. Good hits, good hits. Smashed them. Uh, and, and I'll tell you how professional the hair guys were, man. So we followed it up. And something happened, you know on the circle around this he was the lazing platform right and as he circled around he's like hey my uh my, my jdm is uh i think i think something happened to the gps or whatever and it wasn't the fidelity we needed to be to employ so i said no worries you got the guns right and same final attack heading here we go and we're going to use the gun instead so he rolls up comes around rolls in i can tally and i'm watching from the other guy's pot 
Like, yep, same spot. Cleared hot. Gun jams. He comes off, comes again, you know, gun jams again. And now they're out of gas, you know. I said, no worries, guys. By that point in time, we already had QRF coming out and we had the place cordoned off and we we're going to come in and uh, roll up whoever was still around there, you know. Uh, and how professional the Harriers were then that night. Their XO and, and their PTO both emailed me and they said they're going to drive out. They're going to come out in the next possible way, time and tell me and explain and apologize. They were apologizing to me as to why they couldn't deliver how unprofessional it was of them and how, you know, they were embarrassed and all that. And I said, guys, that was an awesome employment. Like, come on, I'm, I'm an aviator too. I know shit happens, you know, and I know that it wasn't because of switch big or, you know, I have faith in you guys, you know, and I know it wasn't the fact that you, of course, you know, the army guys kind of gave me some ribbings about it. Sure. But I'm like, hey, how many times your your tank misfired? <laughs> but, but they all knew, you know, and we knew it wasn't because they... They didn't do what they were supposed to do. It's just a mechanical issue. So, but, but that's how professional they were. But right? it, I mean, I think it also goes back to the the initial rapport they have established with you. Yeah. Like you know, the guys they're they're not half fastening it. They're not cutting corners. No. They're they're not just you know winging it. Great dudes. They're man. showing up on time, ready to go, and shit does happen. Yeah. So that deployment as a whole, again, without getting into it, like we could for probably three or four hours about that, just that deployment. You know, it's got its highs and lows. I would say that was probably a high. That was a that was a good part of it, but it's rare that you go through something a, a full deployment like that without having some yeah, some challenges. What was something was there something that you guys experienced that I don't know, opened your eyes and Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate. I mean, I went out a lot and we took turn, you know, when I was out, one of the other fire combat teams operated as an air officer. Like I said, those guys were super experienced and the three of us could do anybody's job easily, right? Um, so I went out often with the battalion commander on uh, on his you know usual patrol. I also went out with the uh, the snipers from the ODA team. We had an ODA team that was with us. So whenever those guys went out, you know, um, especially we did like sniper um, employment where they would drop you know a, a pair of snipers in the middle in the middle of the city, and they wanted us to go with them. So once it would be the other guys, and sometimes I would go out. And it would be just me and a radio operator with two snipers and a, um, a security element for them. And we'd go hold up in the, in the building for 72 hours, right? So I got to do a lot of like stuff like that, patrols and uh, like the aeroscout mission I was talking about. And um, there were some times when it got shitty, right? Uh, I think one of them was when one of the contractor kicked the door down to get a uh, an HVT and First thing they do is throw in a flashbang. Well, the flashbang freaking blew up in the little nine-year-old girl's face. And we got to go do it in the medevac. And this family, you know, you could argue that, hey, you know, they're harboring an HVT, so they're probably bad dudes anyways. But HVT wasn't there. It was bad intel. And what we're left to do is call the medevac and hope that little girl will survive. And you're your parent, you know, and, looking at this little kid and mom and dad are hysterical crying and sucks you know but that's the um, ugliness of war so that that sucked um other times when we had to go pick up body parts from our guys that got blown up by an IED 
you know, I, I remember that happened one time when we were out there with the, with the, um, we had a, a, a section of uh, EOD guys with us. At first during my time, it was a Marine EOD team, and then they got replaced by a Navy EOD team. Um, but I was, every time I'd go out, uh, the EOD team would, would roll out with me, you know. And uh, it was Gunny. And his replacement, they came out, and the guy was about to retire. I think if I remember correctly, he was a senior chief about to retire, and got blown up into little bits and pieces. And so, you know, we, we went out and picked up his body parts for the rest of the day. But that sucked, you know. And then you got to cage your brain because you got to do it again tomorrow. Yeah. It's part of the game. Well, How'd you get your head right after something like that? You know, in the beginning I was, I don't know if it gung-ho is the, uh, the word for it, but I was kind of hyped up about going to combat and all that. But about halfway through, man, I just wanted to make sure that we did a job, that we provided support to the to the grunts whenever they went out. And above all, I wanted to make sure that all my guys came home. So that became kind of like the the priority, you know, like making sure that we're professional, we do everything we need to do, but don't expose ourselves to unnecessary risk. So your the realities of war, your your vision on it, your perspective on it kind of evolved throughout? Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. And what I think anybody who say otherwise is lying to some degree. Right. You know, I don't think most people go out and their, their ideas to go out and score as many kills or drops or employments. Like, nobody gives a shit, man. Nobody cares how many employments you've had or none. You know? But tell you what, man, people will care if you're... If you, if you leave somebody on the battlefield, you know. Very true. Very true. All right, man. So that deployment ends. You get home. Now, you you had pushed going to flight school back. Oh, yeah. So I so had selected. You, had sl- you got selected to go to flight school to prior, be a pilot. Prior to going to my fact tour. And you told, the, you told the monitor, hey, man, hold on my flight school yeah, slot. I asked him. I said, hey, um, I really want to go on this fact tour because... I want to be a pilot above anything else, but Marine Corps is at war, man. I, I felt like that was my duty. You know, that's something I needed to do. If that was the last thing that I would do, you know, in the Marine Corps. And he's like, dude, you can't waste any time. You know, you got to go to flight school. You know, the clock is working against you. And I was like, dude, I, my career might be over after one tour as a pilot, but I don't care. And this is, this is something that all my bros were doing at the time, you know, Golf, spaghetti, dose, you know, tubes, munchbox. I mean, I named all of my first tour guys, and every one of them went on a on a combat fact tour, and I'd feel, I don't know, I, I I would feel weird if I was going to flight school instead. <laughs> yeah, while well, your bros are in the shit. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. So I agree, dude. I think that's uh, you know, if as cool as it was flying Hornets, you know, and everything. Dude, I, I look back at if I can go back to second tanks and and let's say finish a career with the tank battalion, I, I'm in, man. Like, so that that's a, a unique thing that I think, you know, maybe it's just the Marine Corps. Maybe we've got well, I t- well dude, uh, just to finish that part out. So it's an 18 month thing, you know, before they can send somebody else to replace me. Yeah, and he tells me he's like, dude, it's gonna push you back 
a significant amount of time for flight school, you know. And so they defer me. And um, and I get back from this deployment. And this is the third time I'm talking to the skipper, right, the colonel. And he's like, hey, Charlie, I heard you got, uh, you got accepted for the transition. You're going to go be a pilot. Like, oh, yeah, sure, it's awesome, but um, I'm, I'm with you for another eight months or a year because there's no replacement until then. He goes, bullshit, you're wasting your time here. You need to go to flight school. You did some good work, so you need to go to flight school and come back and do some good work. He reached over and calls the XO and it's like, call the monitor, tell him to cut his orders. Ten days later, I got my orders. Ten days from coming back. Then we came back and we got like, you know, a week of leave or two weeks of leave, whatever. And Ten days later, I had orders. I was like, blown away i was going out of corpus christi that is rock star leadership yeah man because he wasn't going to get anybody to replace me for eight months a year or whatever that next cycle that is rock star leadership yeah that's badass and that put me back on timeline so now i'm like hey i'm still fairly junior as a did captain. that make you want to stay there oh dude i've we talked before you know i that deployment i i slept for six months in a iraqi old barracks um three feet away from a Lance Corporal, and above me was the uh, Corporal, and then above that kid next to me was the Sergeant, you know. For six months, dude, there was four of us a couple feet away from each other. I love those guys. Dude, we're just going to let it ride. Yeah. We'll let, we'll let, what's his name? Teddy. Teddy. Teddy just chirping in the background. We're going to let it go. 15 pounds of terror. 15 pounds of terror. (laughs) Just scaring the neighbors. All right. You can edit this out, right? No, we're leaving this. We're leaving this. <laughs> I don't care. Awesome. But so uh, that was, you know, having your battalion commander go to bat for you. That would make, for for me at least, in my, it, um, if I was in your shoes, that would make me want to stay. Man, I'm like, I, Skipper, I, I'd want, I want to stay here. This is the best. Dude, I, I, I loved it. I had a blast. Uh, but the reality came into that I knew I needed to get back and um, and move on to the next next piece, you know. So it was it was good, dude. It was it was like in thanks, Skipper. Here's my fit rep. See ya. So overall, your factor experience was awesome, dude. It was more than I can imagine, and um, I was renewed, man. I was I was ready to. I was a life right up one time. Batteries recharged. Yeah, went back to flight school and dude, being going back to flight school as a captain, two combat tours, one on the ground, one flying, did not suck. That's dude. That's such a. Did your factory make you a better pilot? Oh, for sure. It it, it gave you perspective as to why you, why we were marine aviators. Yes. So powder, you know, a bro of ours. Yeah. Powder Cascanemi. He did his fact tour with, gosh, I want to say 2.6 or 2.8, but it was cool. So he came back to the checkerboards, and we were talking fact tour stuff and everything, and he was explaining how he got better as a pilot after his fact tour. And he yeah. was like, Susan, we are in the customer service industry. You know, as cool as we are flying Hornets, rah, 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 we are support. We are supporting assets. He's right on the money, you know, man. The customers, the main effort, the guys who we are there to support are the guys on the ground. Yeah. I was like, you're spot on, man. And after after second tanks, you got to see that from a different angle. And I was like, I get it now. Yeah. So, all right, man, we're going to fast forward. So you go through flight school. 
you become a Hornet pilot, you get to fly Hornets, that's all great, do some fighter pilot stuff, but we're going to fast forward to the last part of this discussion, which uh, things take a bit of a curveball yeah. in Charlieville. Yeah. 2018, you decide to go mountain biking. Oh, man. Well, the reason why is because you know, I, I'd done well as a pilot. You know, I've done all my department heads and got promoted. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm waiting on essentially to see if I get picked up for command or not. You know, and the Marine Corps required somebody to go represent. You know, I think three uh, MEF uh, on a promotion board, and the description, which I found it comical, was had to be a fixed wing minority aviator. Because, you know, we had to fit a certain amount of, this is all Title 10 stuff. The board had to had a makeup of X amount from X amount of fields. And it had to be X amount for diversity purposes and everything else. And then they ran the database. And at the time, there were like three or four of us. One was a CO. The other one was me as the OPSO. And then uh, another dude was somewhere else. And, of course, you know, it was like rock, paper, rank, and... <laughs> <laughs> rock paper rank i like that i'm stealing that dude rock paper rank i like that and uh, of course you know i i had the bot the shorthand so yeah i went out to um to be a promotional promotion board member and um memorial day 2018 you know i'm i'm out mountain biking and, I, and i've been an avid mountain biker at the time where avid were you mountain biking uh west virginia west virginia All snowshoe right. mountain snowshoe mountain and this is like Full up, like full battle gear, full face helmet. Take your, you take the ski lift up the mountain with your bike, and then so you're, you're ski lifting. You're riding down the off season ski slopes. Oh yeah, these are like double black, triple black diamonds. <laughs> Massive jumps, drops, <laughs> wall rides. You know, like on eight inch travel bikes. You know, sounds and like I, a great idea. Uh, you know, I so I didn't do this cavalierly. You know, I I have been an avid mountain biker. I had been an avid uh, cyclist and a fairly fit at the time. So you don't go from the bunny slope to the black diamond? No, no, no. I had been doing this for a while. You know, I'd done that in, you know, Mammoth, a bunch of other mountains. You know, this is not my first time. And um, anyways, long story short, one of the uh, last ride of the day, I come down and finished a hard part of the ride and I'm riding out and didn't pay attention. And next thing you know, I hit a route. Went over the handlebars, and then it went dark really quick. And uh, I remember just waking up, you know, I'm like, oh, man, that, that was a hard hit. And I'm sitting there going, shit, it, it hurts, but all right, time to get up. And I'm laying on the ground, and I'm looking at my arms, and nothing's moving. All right, dude, get up. Nothing's moving. And then quickly followed by... Shit, I can't breathe. And quickly followed by panic. Like, oh, fuck, I can't breathe. And then, you know, my buddy who was in front of me, he had heard all the commotion. So he comes back and he had a GoPro camera on his helmet. He's like, hey, John, you okay? And then I watched the video later on. And the only thing I said was, I can't breathe, you know. And then you can see in the video, my eyes roll in the back of my head. And then I stopped breathing. Um, and my buddy was about to rip my helmet off of my head to, um, to do CPR. You know, he's like, oh shit. 
And right at that moment when he was about to do that, you can hear on the um, on the audio, somebody said, don't touch me, don't touch him, I'm a physician. And then the video kind of rolls off because she knocks him out, right? So the, the person that came right behind all of this, he saw all that happen, happened to be a doctor. So he's about to try giving you CPR and she says, don't touch him and yeah. pushes him away? Yeah. She knocked him out, like pushed him out of the way. And, um, and then by sheer luck of God, you know, the person she was riding with happened to be a former mountain rescue guy at that mountain who happened to be riding with a radio and he knew the trails in the back of his hand. So she, what type of physician is she? I don't know. We, we don't know, but we can hear, like I heard, like I saw the video, right? And at that point in time, she knocked him out. So the, the helmet kind of rolls off and it's just staring somewhere else, but you can hear all the audio. And you can hear her say, you know, I think it's a spinal cord injury. I'm going to stabilize his neck. Uh, we need to get him to breathe again. He's not breathing. I don't, I don't have a pulse. And the guy that she's riding with is like, all right, uh, I'll sweep the tongue and, you know, I'll do the compression in the chest. So my friend tells me later on that, you know, she's stabilizing my neck in the same position, locks it in. And my helmet, you know, the face had, uh, had flown off. So, you know, reaches in and, Sweep my tongue and opens my mouth, and the other guy's doing chest compression. So, were you choking on your tongue? I don't know entirely what was happening. All I know is that, from my perspective, you know, I remember not being able to breathe, and then next thing you know, like kind of like when you g out, same kind of thing. It just kind of like tunnel vision, dark, 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 and all of a sudden it went all dark, right? And the moment it went all dark, uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, "Fuck, I'm dying. I can't breathe. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna die." Um, and then just remember it felt like it lasted an eternity. I was hanging in the balance in the most like dark place, you know, and, and I just remember just existing at that point in time and just thinking to myself, like, fuck, I'm dead. <laughs> and this felt to me like an eternity, but you know, I think total time was minutes, um, even less than minutes. Um, but, um, she was doing all that. The guy was doing compression and I started breathing again, right? So she was like, hey, um, slow your breathing down. Uh, you got to calm down. Do you know where you are? She's like asking me all these questions. What's your name? What year is it? Where you at? Where does it hurt? Now, in my mind, it went dark. And I remember just feeling like I was just hanging there forever. Uh, and then, And then... It went from dark to like bright, 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 bright. I guess it clean the most white, clear, warm feeling environment. It's just warm feeling, you know. It's not like I'm seeing I'm seeing myself, but I'm kind of like aware that I am there, you know. And I just remember thinking like, man, I'm not ready yet. You know, my, my family still needs me. And then next thing you know, you know, I start to like pick up motions. And next thing you know, I'm starting to see things in the peripheral vision. And then the sound, man, I just distinctively remember it sounded like something from far away just came and all of a sudden it's like a loud pitch. And I couldn't make out what it was, but I could hear like muffled voice, you know. And then I saw a shape of somebody hovering over me. And then next thing you know, I, at that moment, you know, all the pain, all the anxiety, all the fear, everything came back. And you could hear that too because it was quiet, quiet. And on the audio, you could hear me start screaming. My friend was like, dude, it was 
every time somebody touched you, you would scream. I was like, yeah, <laughs> oh, I felt the pain, you know. Um, but then at that point, she was the one who told me, it's like, hey, you need to calm down and slow your breathing down. You're going to go into shock, you know. And she was asking me all those. And I was like, yeah, I, I can't move anything, you know. And I got her to say, I think he has a spinal cord injury. Um, and then, um, like I said, the, uh, her partner got on the radio, called in the, the, uh, the medevac, called in the ambulance. Weather was so bad, they couldn't fly the helicopter in. So they got this special, like, uh, gator that came up with, like, a special gurney that basically they, they inflated it and locked my body in position, put me in a gurney, rode it down to the base of the trail on the mountain, and then put me in the ambulance, drove me down to the helipad, then the helicopter, they loaded me in the helicopter and flew me to the uh, ICU. And, and they were heading to Charlottesville. Um, but the weather was so bad, they had to divert to Roanoke. So, so far, you don't know how bad it is. You just know you're you're trying to move your arms and legs. You can't feel anything. Nothing's moving. Yeah. A physician and a a rescue guy find you right before your buddy is about to move you. True, true statement, man. And he's got a radio on him. Yeah. And she's a physician. Jeez, dude, this is luck on a next level. Um, Remember we said in the first part, I, know, I, man. Say my, I my, thought I was my lucky. Life is like, dude, I think you might have me beat. Are you, you're not even Irish. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, man. But well, so, all right. So what do you know? What's, and then they, they bring a gator up. An inflatable gurney. So it, it literally just, does it kind of squeeze you so you yeah. can't move? Yeah, I don't feel anything, but that's what I was told. You know, I remember I'm laying on my back. I can't. Do you remember the ride down the mountain? The rest of the ride and then the helicopter and everything? All I saw was trees and sky. And somebody asking me questions about, you know, who I was and where I was and stuff like that and what I was doing and if I had anybody there with me. And then when I got to the hospital, they were taking my vitals and, you know, they took me to initial clinic and the clinic is like, we need to get him to a level one trauma center and get the helicopter in here. And then he came back. He's like, hey, hey, buddy, you can get hands. Uh, we can do everything we can to save your life. Who said that? The doctor that initially, you know, saw me at the very first before they loaded me onto the uh, airplane, onto the helicopter. Um. I didn't know this, but I had a hangman's fracture. So basically, I, I broke my C2 vertebrae in half. And at the break, it was very close to the femoral artery. And then I broke my C3, T3, T4, and I partially ruptured my spinal cord. Okay, hang on. All right, so I don't speak doctor, but a hangman's break? Hangman's fracture hangman's is... Hangman's fracture is what happens when, you, when you're hung. hanging somebody and their neck breaks. Christopher Reeves. That's, that's what happened to him. That's exactly what happened to me. All right. And if you look it up, like it's a 99% fatal accident. All right. And then you said the femoral artery? Or are you talking about one of your carotid arteries? Like okay, your yeah, right, right. I'm sorry. I, I said the wrong thing. Okay. Because I was going to say like, damn, you broke your leg too or something? All no. right. So you're, you have a broken neck? Yeah. A broken spine? Yeah. Partially um, torn spinal cord. And what, what makes it f fatal? So when you have, when you get hung and your C1 and C2 breaks, it collapses, and then it basically crushes your, you know, pharynx? Your, your, your windpipe? Yeah, your windpipe. So you suffocate. And you suffocate. And then on top of that, you know, if your spinal cord is ruptured, then that's how you 
completely paralyzed. Yeah. So when you weren't breathing on the ground, was it, do you, do they, do you know what was causing you to be, to, to suffocate or to be suffocating? I think, um, it was a combination of that, you know, the, the, the thing dislodging and also because of, uh, the position I was in. Right. Uh, doctors later on told me that, you know, I was lucky that that doctor did what she did. She had your buddy rip the helmet off and tilt your head back. You'd be gone. Like you would die automatically. <laughs> so luck, right? Dude, better be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, no shit. All right, man. So you're at the hospital. You're, you get to ride in a helicopter. Doctor says, don't worry, buddy. You're in good hands. We're going to do our best to save your life. Yeah. And you go to, now you go to, you started in Roanoke? Yeah, that's where you initially started. Where did they fly you to? So I'm in the ICU in Roanoke. Um, and I remember this, man. I, I'd be in, uh, in the ICU. And then my buddy, you know, he's a, he's a Marine too, by the way. You know, he, he comes up and then he puts that Facebook post out. And then all my friends, like everybody who is friends with me on Facebook, like, holy shit, you know. And funniest thing, man, um, the head nurse for the ICU, she comes in, she goes, you must be a really popular guy. Our phone is ringing off the hook. And there's all these Marines asking about you. So here's the deal. You tell me <laughs> who, you, I'm going to give you three people. And we're going we're gonna to let them have this number. Everybody else, we're taking this number down. Because we need to have the lines open. Oh, shit. And literally, basically said, you're, you're killing our lines. <laughs> Like my bros and 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 uh, you know the Marines, everybody was just that's cool. Outpouring of support and love, you know, and and then some came and visited me, which was awesome. Uh, but you know, it was so precarious that they didn't want to do surgery because they said the chance. Uh, I think the head um, neurosurgeon told me it's like, hey, the chance of you not making through the surgery is higher than we don't know what's going to happen, but we know there's a seventy-two hour where. Uh, your body goes into this kind of lockdown mode and we don't really know other than the MRI shows that you have, you know, half of your spinal cord is torn. So we're going to wait and see how it goes. And at that point in time, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't, you know, they do an Asia D test and like, yeah, it, it, it appears to be a complete, you know, they either categorize as a complete or incomplete, um, um, spinal cord injury. And, um, anyways, a uh, couple of days go by, you know, I, I don't remember exactly how long, but I mean, I see you guys come in to visit me and, you know, I, I start to like gain a little bit of sensation of my right hand and my right foot. And I remember just being in the denial, but I'm in and out of consciousness. You know, they, they, they have me hooked up with all kinds of painkillers, you know, and then the moment that I'm not sleeping and I'm waking up, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like in this denial mode and I, I don't really believe that this is happening, you know. Um, and I started to gain some feelings in my right hand, my thumb would start moving, you know, and my right leg would twitch a little bit. And, and when they decided that like, Hey, we're going to put him in a halo and it looks like his body somehow is able to hold and I can hear him talk. It's like, yeah, his blood pressure is, is really good. And then the doctor came in and he said, you know, I can see that you're in really good shape physically, you're physically fit. So that's going to be the best uh, outcome for you for recovery. Um, we're not going to do a, a surgery. 
they, the surgery they were talking about is basically cutting out the front, cutting out the back, and putting in like rods down like from my occipital bone to my back of my head to all the way down to C8, and essentially putting titanium rods to hold everything together so that the uh, C2 can C3 can heal, right? And then also do a tracheotomy so that they put a windpipe in a hole in my windpipe so I can breathe. But at the time I was breathing. At the time I was stable. So they're like, well, let's see how it goes. What, what, what do you think? And I said, well, if I don't need to, I'd rather not. <laughs> well, that's cool that they, uh, I mean, you're conscious, you're talking, you're providing feedback. Yeah. And that was the surprising part And this part is a for discussion. Yeah, this is a surprising part for them. They're like, it probably has something to do with how fit I was at the time. Um, and like I said, you know, I was lucid. I was, you know, I was very sound mentally, you know. And I'm, I'm in there. And at so that the, time, after a discussion, you guys decide let's not do surgery. Yeah. So is is it? Are you really just a waiting? Let's see if it naturally heals. Is this a? They were just waiting to see if it gets worse. At this point in time, they don't really know how to go about and, and address this. Like I said, you know, like a C1, C2 break is pretty fatal, right? So a little while goes by and they downgrade me from ICU to the next level. So now instead of like being on a constant watch, it's somebody that comes in every 30 minutes or an hour watch. And, and it appears that my body is regaining a little bit. So I'm getting... I'm getting function on my right arm, getting function on my right leg. But I, I mean, by function, I, mean, I can lift the arm. I can close the hand type deal. How long before you could start to feel things in your arms and legs? Oh, dude, it was a long time. Um, but I, I could, like, you know, look at my right hand and say, hey, I want to raise it up to the ceiling, and I could move it up. I could say, hey, close your fingers, and I could close my fingers. So are we talking? But I'm not talking about, like, Fine motor skill. Right. Is this days, period. weeks, months? To gain all that back? Yeah. Oh, dude, it's like a year. A year? Oh, yeah. All right, so you, now you skipped that. We skipped a year. So for that entire time. Dude, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm, I'm talking about like small steps, man. I'm like, hey, I can wiggle my toes. How long before you could wiggle your toes? Um, my right toe and my right leg and my right arm. I, I, it took me within weeks. I would, you know, days and weeks I could like. You know, hey, I could twitch my, my toe. I could raise my calf up. Okay, so a few I could weeks. Raise my knees. Twitch the toe, move the knee. Yeah, my left side was, I couldn't do anything for a while. But, you know, I was lucky because the uh, physical therapists that were there were like, hey, uh, if you're up for it, it seems like your brake is fairly stable. You're in a halo. We had this contraption, but we need to get you up and moving so that, you know, we, it's the best way for you to recover. I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. So they had this huge kind of like baby walker contraption that they hooked me up to. Dude, there were like eight people around me. And imagine like, you know, the little baby walker where you sit in and you to take the first couple steps. That's basically what I had. But I had somebody holding my right leg, somebody holding my left leg, somebody holding my tor torso because I couldn't hold anything. I couldn't hold up. I, I had no control other than my right arm. Or, and it was like huge efforts just to pick up my leg and take one step but i wasn't doing it they were doing it so they're moving you oh yeah they're holding you upright and moving your body yeah. just to go through the motions yeah. literally dude it, it it was it was a monumental effort to can move. you feel this 
Not really. I can tell that I'm, I can move a little bit on my right side. I can move my leg and my right arm a little bit. But it was more like dragging my leg, my right leg forward. And they were like, no, you got you to pick it up. You got to squeeze the muscle. You got to bring it up and do a step. Um, and then they had this thing where they put a spoon in my hand. And their OT was like, all right, we're going to learn how to basically hold a spoon. And I would hold, I could close all my fingers and hold the spoon. Like, all right, you got you to try to feed yourself, you know, and I like bring it up and <laughs> I would hit my nose, you know. I'm talking about that's the kind of basic motor skill I had. Um, but, but it was pretty quick how I started to, you know, regain from there. So once you kind of broke the ice and you're a few months in, you know, you can you can wiggle your toes, move your calf. Did it start to have so, a little bit of a? Did you start to get some momentum? Yes, but I was told also that this is kind of we don't know where it's going to go, but you need to prepare yourself for life as a you know quadriplegic. You know, and I was told I was lucky not to be in a wheelchair with a tracheotomy and. A, uh, and, and a bag, a poop bag, and, you know, breathing through a tube to move, you know. But, man, in my mind, I was like, this is not it. This is not my lot. It's not the end. I'm, I'm going to meditate my way through this, you know. And one of the first things I did and is I asked the doctors to keep me off of all the painkillers. Because the painkillers they gave you. So when you have a spinal cord injury, man, you, you lose all ability to feel pain, feel pain, uh, sharpness, dullness, hot, cold, you know, uh, somebody cuts you, you lose all that, right? But as your body was waking up, uh, sometimes you go into bouts of what they call nerve pain, and it's the most excruciating pain I ever felt in my life. And there were times when I felt like I was being stabbed by a million needles. And then times where I felt like my legs were burning or they were on fire or they were frozen, uh, and so they give you this pain medication, Neurotons, that basically numbed all of those feelings. But also, it made you loopy, you know. And I was like, how the hell am I going to recover if I can't feel anything? So I said, you know, pain is good. Because if I can feel pain over time, I can control that. So I asked, and they're like, you're crazy. <laughs> My wife said I was crazy. Yeah, I'm sure that's, <laughs> everybody probably thought you were crazy. So I... I turkey man i cut out all the neurotins all the uh, gabapentin all the crap all the oxycone everything i just stopped taking them and, and it was painful um talked to my mom at the time she she came over to be with me and she was telling me about how to you know meditate to get your mind into a different spot and there were times when i was laying in bed and it was in between when the nurse came to check on me and I'm in like excruciating pain and I just lay there, stare at the ceiling and thinking about happy places and scuba diving in Guam. Yeah, Westpac. <laughs> Westpac dive calls. Yeah, it, it it was a mental it was a mental struggle. But I, I, I always said, you know, I had this belief that my body could heal itself and that I could I could wheel it to to heal itself. Did they tell you and I remember when we first heard this story 
a while back is, didn't you get fitted for a wheelchair? I was in a wheelchair. So you were in a wheelchair. I was in a, uh, I have a picture of it. I'll show it to you. I, have, I was in a wheelchair that, because my right arm worked. My left arm didn't work. My left leg didn't work. Uh, so I couldn't wheel myself. So they put me in this wheelchair where I had a little joystick on the right. And that's how I moved around. And did they, is that something they briefed you on that you had to, you know, they said you had to come to grips potentially with mm-hmm. living as a quadriplegic with yeah. a tracheotomy and all that. When they said, hey, here's your wheelchair, was your reaction, okay, here's my wheelchair? Or was it, man, I was in, you know, a temporary thing where, and at that point in time, I was, I was in a state of denial and I saw it as an opportunity for me to be upright and not being laying on my back. I, as a matter of fact, dude, I was, the nurses told me, I stayed good friends with the uh, nurse case manager and some of the nurses in my ICU. They told me, they're like, yeah, you were the best patient we had. You never complained. There were times when I'm laying there and I'm in between, you know, and I, I and my arms couldn't reach the little button to call the uh, the nurse, you know. And I had this like searing pain on the part of my head. Because, you know, when you're laying somewhere for a while, you get the hot spot. Um, and I could feel that part. And I was burning pain. But I wasn't screaming in agony and crying and making a fuss about it. And when the nurse finally came like an hour later, I'll say, hey, do you mind uh, moving my pillow a little bit? Because I have this nagging pain. She's like, why didn't you call us? I said, well, you know, everybody on this floor, I hear them all screaming and yelling. And I figured, you know, might as well get used to this. (laughs) (laughs) So you were, were you grateful for the pain? I was grateful that I could feel things. And like I said, man, I spent my entire entire time when I was on my back, I would take inventory of my body. So I would say, all right, I'm going to start from the right side, go all the way down, go all the way back up, and I'm going to take inventory of every single muscle that I can feel. And, and when I was bored, I was like, all right, I can feel my right ass cheek. So I'm going to do 10 ass squeeze. Just flexing your ass cheek. Yep. Whatever muscle I could feel, I would, like, I'm going to work out. How much of a victory was that when when you noticed something else starting to work? Oh, dude. I would call when you nurse. When you got to feel your right ass cheek Man, for the you first should, time. You should ask my mom, you know, like, the nurse would come and say, hey, hey, I think I can, I think I can wiggle my toe. She'd look, and I was like, watch, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to move it. She goes, oh, yeah, I can see it move. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a massive boost to morale. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I was able to sit up, I was able to do other things, but I couldn't move other arms and my left leg and my left arm, I couldn't move it. But then, you know, I, I was like, Hey, I'm going to get better. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to feel, um, and I was like envisioning moving my left arm. And that took a long time for me to be able to open and close my left fingers. How long? Like over a year. Oh, yeah. And I remember, so then the Marine Corps was like, all right, he's stable. He's not dying. Uh, I think this is like a month in now, and he's. we need to move him to the next level care. So they wanted to send me to um, Walter Reed you know, Medical Center. And my nurse case manager was like, no, you need to go to Shepherd. It's in Atlanta. It's one of the premier 
spinal cord injury facility in America. If you have a chance to walk again, this is where you need to go. So she was like, who can I talk to? And I said, oh, this guy, he's my, he's my boss, you know, the Mac commander. And, um, you know, they made phone calls and I don't know what all else went in the background, but somehow I was allowed to basically receive care at Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Um, and the next burden was Marine Corps being the Marine Corps, or DOD being the DOD. They were going to do the cheapest way and send me via an ambulance across the states. And she was like, <laughs> Hell We'll put you in the back of a seven no. ton. We'll put you in a seven ton or a Humvee. And so she was like, yeah. Absolutely not. So, you know, we delayed another week. Uh, same thing. She went back to uh, give her the Mac commander's number and they did the work they did. And next thing you know, a transcom you know, message came out. Uh, and they contracted it to this uh, aero um, ambulance company, and they flew some sort of like um, citation. Yeah, they flew it in, uh, ambulance me there to the airfield. Um, two nurses came out with like a gurney. I got a picture of it. I got to show it to you. Yeah, man. Uh, they pushed me on the back of this Cessna and then flew me down to Atlanta and then ambulanced me to the uh, to the to the spinal cord injury facility. It's insane, man. I, that, so this is a year in, a year plus? No, no, no. This is this is about a month in. A month, month in. So yeah. you, the majority of that year we talked about, you're you're in Atlanta. You're at Shepherd? Not entire year. So I go to Shepherd in Atlanta, and this is like next level advanced. They have some of the most technologically amazing equipment, right? Um, and they are like, that's their deal. They do spinal cord injury. And I'm at the top level. And they go in and, and, and they're like, hey, you're going to stay in your um, halo. And we're going to start, you know, putting you through all these exercises. They had these machines basically that I strapped myself in. And I would move my arms and legs, you know, to stimulate. They had these things that they would hook up to my muscles. And then basically I was there for like an hour. And then uh, electrical impulses would go in and stimulate those muscles. Uh, they had a swimming pool where I go in and and basically do weightless um, transfer. They had this, you know, um, what do you call that treadmill where I was hung from the ceiling, and there were physical therapists on both sides, you know, basic and cameras everywhere, and they can sense the weight that I was putting in, and they could see the thermal footprint, and they'll be like, "Hey, we're gonna teach you how to walk," you know. I right, squeeze your butt muscle to pick up your leg and squeeze your calf, squeeze this. And, and I would be doing that for eight hours a day. Weightlifting and all that. I'll tell you a funny story. So from then on, you know, I, my progress is exponential, right? So I'm upright. I'm able to do all these exercises. And uh, I'm in the parallel bars. I'm learning how to walk. I'm learning how to use a, a spoon. I'm learning how to, you know, grab a towel and, and sit on a wheelchair and, and bathe myself, you know, uh, basic functions, right? How to transfer from a wheelchair to a, a table so I can shower myself. Um, and um, relearning the functional skills of closing my fingers and touching my, you know, each finger with my thumb, you know. Um, and I'm in, uh, I get done usually about 5 p.m. every day. Okay. And um, we had like a weight room on one of the lower floors. So by then I'm, I'm in a wheelchair. Cammy's with me now, by the way, you know, um, 
and and at the acid doctor was like hey i don't do anything between five to the next day I'm like yeah this is your rest time so like, can i have access to the weight room they're like what are you gonna do i'm like oh, you know i'm just gonna do a couple extra exercise so they they gave me access so you're what's functional at this point so at this point in time um my right side is functional my left side i could basically close my hand right but i couldn't like but it, it's like very rudimentary i couldn't hold anything i could i could just you know curl up my fingers and I couldn't lift my arm. I couldn't do any of that stuff. But it was rudimentary, right? But I'm in a wheelchair, and I could close my hand so that I can basically just push down, right? Uh, my right arm, I, I could do, it, it's becoming a lot more functional. I could do, like, you know, more than just basic stuff. And same thing with right leg. And I would, this is a video I sent to people. I'm like, hey, you know. I could basically sit with the help of Cammy. I could sit up on the at the edge of the bed, and basically just stand up and sit down. Stand up and sit down. I was doing squat, <laughs> you know, um, and then I would tie like these rubber bands on the uh, ceiling rafters, and I would tie them to my left leg and left arm, and I would like pull them up and down just to exercise them, you know. And I'd go down to the gym on my own, and Cammy would wheel me down, and I would lift like half a pound. A pound weight. <laughs> I have an awesome video. I got to show it to you. <laughs> She's doing uh, curls with a one yeah. pounder. Oh yeah. And she is dying laughing. And that's a victory. I mean, it's a victory. Yeah. And she's dying laughing. She's like, oh, that's so cute. You know? Oh man. Talk about keeping it in perspective, keeping it real, you know? Yeah. Um, but here's the best part. So I do this and I have no feeling of pain. So what happens when you don't feel pain? Or you so don't you hit the gym after hours. Yeah. And, but you, you can't feel pain. No. So I, I think I remember that where this is going. So I basically lift myself into muscle failure. Like I, I literally cannot lift that half a pound anymore. Right. And the next day I had a freaking spiking fever. My body goes into shock and they don't know what the heck's going on. And then she's like, oh, he's in the gym last night. And they quickly figure it out. I basically went to shock because I, Worked out to so your body fire. was trying to tell you to knock it the fuck off. Yeah, but you didn't know because you couldn't feel it. No. so you kept pushing. Yeah, and then your body shuts down. Yeah, and then I was that privilege was taken away from me. <laughs> <laughs> you got put in hack from the gym. You weren't allowed to do dude, your one got, pound curls. The doctor neurosurgeon read me the riot act. Oh, I believe it, dude. Like, you know, most of the patients we got to like push them to do some work. <laughs> Like you, we're gonna have to do the opposite. You gotta dial it back. Uh, so then, you know, I, I, I do like exponential. You know, um, at that point in time, I'm, I'm able to. Um, I think I regain my left leg pretty quickly, um, but it's not like fine. I, I could walk, but it looked very awkward, kind of like radio, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the Marine Corps was like, "Well, he can't be at Shepherd anymore, so we're gonna transfer him to uh, uh, Wounded Warrior Battalion West." in Balboa, you know, where I go, and this is where I get a dose of reality. I'm in the critical care unit in Balboa, San Diego Naval Hospital. In the same place, there are due to a, like, double, quadruple amputees, Navy SEAL who got blown up from Afghanistan. And this dude is like, you couldn't tell that he was 
he had no arms and no legs. You know, he was like working out his core. <laughs> you know, there were there was an F fifteen dude who had punched out from Okinawa, and he was wrecked. But he was learning how to walk, and he and I was just like talking stories about you know fighter pilot shit. Um, there was a senior chief who got rolled over by a horn, super hornet, lost both his legs. He was getting uh, prosthetics. You see what I'm getting at? Man, I get a dosage of like, dude, shut the fuck up. You you broke your neck from a mountain bike accident. <laughs> hey, quit being a bitch, Charlie. Jeez. So, and I and my job is to recover. And the folks at Wounded War Battalion, man, that's a fantastic um, program they have in Marine Corps. Because they allowed me to recover as a full lieutenant colonel. My, I didn't have to worry about my family. My job was to recover. And then, you know, everybody was like, hey, you're 20 years service anyway, so uh, we can medically retire you so you can get, you know, 100% via disability. Super easy. This is the process you do. And I was like, I, I don't want that. I have two limb due periods and I can ask for a third one. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, no, I, I want to recover. I want to get back to what I used to be. Mm-hmm. I want to fly. Like, hey, look, buddy, you're not going to fly a fighter jet. <laughs> like, maybe, but I'm I'm going to go back to flying something. So I got a third NIMDU period because I was making progress, really good progress. So was there a, like, a tipping point where it seems like the first year plus, I mean, you're, it's baby steps, man. Oh, dude. It, I mean, it is. I'm learning to, from, the, from, the, from being a baby. This is, this is, you're making millimeters of progress yeah but it's exponential it goes up pretty fast so what was when did it change from you know i'm going at idle speed to now i can actually get some speed on the aircraft and start making some progress i think about six months uh when i'm at balboa i i saw a lot of progress i went from you know walking between the parallel bars with somebody holding onto a belt uh taking you know it was it was monumental task to take 10 steps to like hey not only i'm walking on this treadmill, but now I can start, you know, they have a special treadmill that basically inflated and took your body weight off of you. And you could run at a very, you know, 10% of your body weight, almost like running in the water. Right. Um, so I was able to do, you know, that kind of stuff within six months to a year, but still it was, it was rudimentary walking and rudimentary running. Was there, was there a point when you realized Okay, I can do this. I can, I can recover completely. Dude, it, it was never a doubt in my mind. I had a stubbornness, denial factor. And, you know, the doctors at the time, she told me too. She's awesome. She was one of my advocates for me to get my, uh, my medical back with the FA, which is a whole story in itself. But she told me, you know, she's like, what's, what's your goal, John? And I said, you know, I want to be found medically fit for duty. She's like, you're crazy. And she said... You know, medically speaking, there's nothing I can explain why you're able to do what you're doing. Because his MRI shows clearly half your spinal cord being liquefied. Liquefied? Yeah, because nerves, you know, when, when, when you tear, it's not like a muscle tissue, you know. It, it kind of like liquefies. And so she showed me on the MRI. You know, you can see the black smudge. You know, like the spinal cord is like all white, clear. And then half of it is like, you know, the black matter. And, and those uh, are your nerves? 
oh yeah for my spinal cord and based on where it was you know they're like yeah well it's above this level so you shouldn't have use of your arms you shouldn't have use of your legs and she said so i don't really we don't really know why you're able to walk why you're able to use your arms but what did they attribute the recovery to did you ever get a surgery no you did not get a surgery yeah, so they, they asked me if I wanted to do this uh, experimental thing that they had at the time. It was, uh, you're going to laugh, it's called a bone growth stimulator. This is what they had used for people who, for example, broke the leg and they needed to, uh, and it was healing, but they needed to, you know, have the, the, the femor- I mean, the, the, uh, the, um, the bone in the leg, you know, grow like a couple millimeters. So kind of like filling in a hole? Yeah. It would. Okay. So what they did is that they said they know that the body uh, produces a frequency to promote like bone growth when you break a bone. So they had an electronic, mach- like, yeah, like electromagnetic frequency. frequency. I'm not sure what yeah. which kind of frequency it is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it sends a pulse yep. when it wants bone to grow yep. somewhere. Yep. Okay. So they had this collar that they had that basically produced that same frequency. It was like a magnetic frequency that it basically ran. And I would wear that for eight hours a day. And, uh, and, and it would, the theory that it would promote bone growth and it would allow my vertebrae, my C2 to basically, you know, grow across the gap. Is this around your neck? You're this is my seat. C- yeah, around my neck. I, dude, I got a picture, man. I got to show it to you. And, and I mean, this was this was experimental. Um, yeah, because they hadn't used it for uh, at the time for for um, someone with a C two break. Like my my vertebrae was, I think it was like four millimeters or five millimeters that was missing. It was significant. So you know they didn't know how it was going to grow, or if it was going to grow, or if it was going to stable. So when they they went through this, they're like they don't know if it was going to work. You know. So we did it and. Um, I'm pretty sure a joke now. I'm gonna die from uh, from something else because I had like more CT scans than anything else. <laughs> you got some radiation going on. Oh, dude, it was crazy. It's like once a week we were going out to Balboa to do a CT scan. That's the only way they could see like the cuts of the bone to see if it was growing. And surely, you can see the bone growing. And then you can see it the bone fusing together. And she was like, "This is amazing." So then, once it it kind of like healed itself. They didn't know how they were going to test it. So, it was, man, it was crazy, man. They, one day I came in and they're like, hey, we have two neurosurgeons with us. We got to tell you in advance. This is pretty crazy, but it's the only way we can tell, right? We're going to take your halo off and we're going to go into this place where you're going to do an x-ray, right? But we're going to have you basically move your neck to the extreme of flexion and extension. And if your bone is not stable and it breaks you could die but we have these two neurosurgeons out that they can see and they will they will stand right there with you and if anything bad happens they will stabilize you and they will immediately go in surgery <laughs> you can ask cammy cammy is sitting with me and she's oh looking at me gosh, and she's like dude. what wait a second here like, hang, what? On. hang on for what purpose what are they doing this for the only way they can tell whether or not my C2 and C3 were stable enough doing full extension and flexion, right? Is by testing it out. 
And if it breaks, you might die. If it breaks, it may be just like what had happened to me in an accident. So they had to basically quickly stabilize me and then immediately go into surgery to put the bone, put the screws in. And <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, uh, are, all right. Dude, at that point in time, I was so sick and tired of this freaking halo. I was so sick and tired of, of being in this mode. And I was like, I'm ready to go. And I went into the x-ray room, two neurosurgeons wearing lead vests, and they were standing right in front of me. One was right behind me. They took my halo off the first time in uh, a long time my halo came off. And like, all right, slowly, let's start with, you know, extension. So up, up, down, up left, down. right? Yeah. Dude, that was the first time. That was the first neck. time you moved your neck yes. in over a year? Yes. How was that? What'd that feel like? Dude, it was scary. It was, you know. Yeah, yeah it oh, might break dude. my neck and die. No big deal. It was so stiff, you know. But I I was fine. And then I got lightheaded a little bit because that was the first time I had moved. They sat me down. They're like, hey, okay, is, is everything okay? You know, checking everything out. They're like, I'm like, yeah, I think I got lightheaded a little bit. Did it hurt? Did it feel normal? It did not feel normal. It it felt because like my new? neck muscle was basically atrophied. Oh, and yeah. You know, it was so stiff and tight from not moving, you know, like my, and I still have that tightness around my neck. Um, but it felt okay. It's the best way I can say it. And they took the x-ray at the extremes too. To what, see what was what, the extreme? I mean, is it like fully extended and fully flexion? So your head all the way back, yep. chin all the way down, yep. full left, full right. They would take x-rays yep. and you're spinal cord at this point it's for the vertebrae for the vertebrae so the bone has fused and they're just testing it yep to make and, sure it didn't break and it's Stable. holding and it's holding jeez dude and at that point they're like all right congratulations you survived something we didn't think was possible <laughs> <laughs> here's a sticker oh man so then i continued rehab a little bit more um and now i'm now i'm, I'm emboldened by the fact that I, nothing is breaking. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I passed the uh, the medical exam. It was found fit for duty to retire. Holy I shit, I did not man. medically retire. Fit for duty to retire. So was that the, when, when you did the neck test and your neck didn't break, yeah. was that kind of the, it was like, all right, I got this. Yeah. Although you weren't doubting yourself in any way, that was the, I got it. I'm going to win this thing. Yeah. And then I set on goals for myself, you know, like I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to walk normal. I'm going to be at that point in time. And I, I could walk a uh, hundred yards and then I was done. You know, like my leg was dragging because I had no muscles. You know, I, I had no, to me it was like, I had to consciously think about squeezing my butt cheek to bring my leg forward. I had to squeeze my calf muscle to flex my, my toes to bring it up so I don't drag it. How much weight did you lose from just muscle atrophy? A lot. My left side was, comp you should see, I mean, I had the picture of my, my left leg was basically the size of my arm. My right arm, my left arm was the side of like twigs. You know, I lost so much weight, uh, so much muscle mass. But then, you know, I went into high gear after that. I would start lifting and, and eating and, and just basically trying to get back to, to be able to walk, you know, a mile, you know. And then first it was like, walk one lap, then walk two laps, then walk a mile, then walk, 
you know, further and further and further. Incremental goals. Yeah. And I always had like next step, next step. But anyway, to fast forward all that, you know, I, I, I get found fit for DG retire. And then I, I went, I retired and I went out to work um, at Lockheed Martin as an engineer. And then the idea to come back and I was like, you know what? I'm getting better. So I went to the VA and kept doing rehab, kept getting stronger and faster. And when I felt like I was able to be no, normal-ish, I started getting the idea of like, you know, hey, let's see if we can get um, my medical license. And that For was the it. FAA, so you yeah. can fly again. And that took a year and a half, and I, f- I was lucky, man. So the FAA, you know, I sent them my VA disability, you know, I sent them the whole thing. And I was like, here we go. This is everything I had, and this is what the VA doctors uh, have found. Um, then they asked me to go see a neurosurgeon. Then they asked me to see a physical therapist, an OT, um, a psychiatrist. I mean, you name it. They asked me to get all of these things. And then the last one was like, hey, uh, we need you to get a board-certified neurologist to comment on the stability of your spinal cord and your vertebrae, in particular under the acceleration and deceleration G-forces as it pertained to aeromedical science. I'm like, holy shit, how am I going to find this? How am I going to find this board-certified neurologist who moonlights as a pilot? Uh, yeah. By the sheer luck of God, I I browse the internet and I come across this in Dallas, this neurologist who is also an expert in aviation medicine, who also serves as a board of waivers for neurology for the FAA. <laughs> Again, the the absolute perfect person you yeah. find them. And I go to the VA and I'm like, hey, I need you guys to help me. And and I understand if I'm not going to be able to get that authorized. But And the VA does, man. They gave me a community care authorization. I took it to her. She agrees. She's like, hey, I got to do a brain MRI. If there's any type of uh, uh, signs of brain bleeding, you're going to be down for five years. You know. But she does all that. She does all the tests. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to recommend full waiver so i got my special issuance with fa everything working through the va and that was so this is 2020 now 2021 uh 2021 2021 we're on the recovery front from the injury at this point are you essentially fully recovered i don't think i'm fully recovered i think i'm you're kind of, are you still hitting the gym, training, physical therapy, yeah. putting weight yeah. back on? Yep. I'm but a, motor skills of your appendages are, is there anything you couldn't do? I couldn't run, right? I couldn't um, do some of the, um, like, I couldn't go out and ride a bike. You know what I mean? Without, because I didn't have the ability to, uh, to be as, as flexible as I used to be, right? But I, but I could, I felt like I could fly i could do everything i hadn't flown i hadn't done anything but i feel like i could do it so step was for me to get back and get medically fit enough all i had to do was convince doctors you know fortunately the faa made me do some very extensive and exhaustive tests and and we did and when i got my special insurance then i went full steam ahead and went back to flying and now you are flying yeah are you full up are you back i mean 
Yeah, dude, I'm 100% type rated in three Boeing. Three big airplanes. <laughs> Jeez. Seven, five, seven, six, triple seven. Holy shit. <laughs> Man, so we're going to start winding down here. Yeah. Going back to this story. There had to be a point where you hit rock bottom. There were lots of moments. Uh, I where you know, I was so frustrated. I couldn't couldn't move my leg or couldn't move my arm and you know i'm picking up a spoon and i'm trying to feed it and i have the hardest time to put it in my mouth you know it's hitting everywhere but my mouth you know spilling shit left and right because i don't have the dexterity and i get frustrated and i get pissed off and i cry out of sheer anger you know um so rock bottom it wasn't just a one-time thing uh, well you didn't stay there long you know my wife you know she's She's my rock, you know, and every time I'd, I'd get to that point, she was like, quit your complaining. Fucking love it. She's like, everything's going to be fine. She never once let me feel like it was, oh, you, I understand. Go ahead and, you know, cry it out. There's no pity party happening. Oh, no. She wouldn't let it happen. <laughs> no, no. Freaking badass woman. No shit. Yeah, so I'm kind of like at the uh, next journey, you know. Is I love the Marine Corps, man. I, I, I'm one of those guys that I loved everything I did in the Marine Corps. Never had a complaint about what assignment I had or didn't have, you know. Shit happened and you just move on. Do you think you were, is it safe to say you were built for this? I mean, go back to, I mean, from when you're six years old, escaping Vietnam and all the shit you've been through. I think that I was better equipped than the average person who faced that kind of injury to be in a mental place where I I could recover. And you've got a wife that will not let you feel sorry for yourself. Absolutely. Support system was massive, man. Suck it up, dude. And the Marine Corps, you know, through the Wounded Warrior Battalion gave me the best opportunity to recover, too. I love it, man. And the VA, too, you know. I mean, they all took care of me really well. So in, when it comes to lessons learned from this experience, we had talked about your fact tour and everything, you know, takeaways from that. Was there a silver lining that you found from being paralyzed? Never give up. That's, I think I put it recently in a Facebook post and I said, you never give up, man. You don't know. I stayed, um, I, I stayed as a mentor for the hospital and the physical therapists and all those people, they see their you know, spinal cord injury patients all the time, especially young ones. So I would, they would call me every now and then like, hey, we have this kid, you know, high school football player and he's really in bad condition, but mentally he's, he's having a hard time overcoming this. Do you mind talking to him? So I, I would have, you know, these Zoom calls and I would have a chat with these guys. Um, so I did, and I still do it. Know, I still have a lot of those people that I, I talk to. Uh, and, and, and I tell them all the time, say, I'm not promising you anything. But what I can tell you is that, you know, you, you've been giving a second chance, a life. That life may be different. It may look different than what you had envisioned. But don't give up. You may not get to recover like I did. 
you, you might, but even if there's a glimmer of hope, you know, don't, don't give up, just keep going. Amen, man. All right. Last question. Did this whole experience give you a, 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 a different perspective and maybe an appreciation for a lot of the shit most people take for granted? I mean, physically, literally, like physically, you talked about picking up a spoon. Yeah. Going for a walk. Yeah, certainly, you know, we, we take for granted our health. Uh, I did. Uh, we take for granted the, the, the routine things you're able to do. Um, even me, you know, we, we take for granted the abilities to do things with our kids or wives or significant others. Coming back from this injury, man, I... I live life to the fullest now. I don't let a moment go by. You know, my son and I, we go hunting, we go camping together. My wife and I, we travel to places together because we're going to do simple stuff. We'll hike. Things that I've always found excuses for why I couldn't go. You know, recently we went to Moab, you know, I was like, yeah, we don't have the time. It's too complicated. It's too much coordination. No, just do it. Because you don't know. You don't know when your time is over, you know? Yeah, man. Max it out while you can. Yeah. Max it out. All right. Damn, that was a hell of a story. Holy shit. How about, yeah, hey, we want to try this thing on you. You might break your neck. You might die. But we got doctors standing by. It's cool, bro. It's the only way we can find out whether or not it's stable. <laughs> man. Holy cow. Have faith. That's the best thing I can say. But yeah, man, I appreciate you uh, taking me down the memory lane. And oh, man, thank thank you for the stories, brother. I mean, honestly, we're gonna we're gonna end up here in a minute. We're gonna close it up. But the uh, awesome lessons learned, man. The resiliency, all this stuff, the stories, dude, badass stuff, man. A very applicable in, I think, any role in life. Yeah, I think, you know, if this helps somebody who faces some sort of difficulty or difficult time or, you know, if they hear this and it gives them an uplifting moment, I think that's why I'm doing this. You know, I, I think it if it has ability to help somebody out when they're facing some dark moments, then I hope it does. I think that's a killer way to finish it up. Yeah. All right. Thanks, brother. Dude, Charlie, thank you, man. Been a pleasure. Absolutely. Save rounds, anything? No. All right, folks. Hell of a conversation with Charlie Den. This is Charlie and Susan. We're out of here. See ya.